I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. If you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the Black Buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. The Meat Eater Podcast is brought to you by First Light. Whether you're checking trail cams, hanging deer stands, or scouting for elk, First Light has performance apparel to support every hunter in every environment. Check it out at firstlight.com. F-I-R-S-T-L-I-T-E.com. All right, joined today by esteemed historian, American historian, Elliot West. Welcome on the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. I've had two, I've had two, well, a lot of run-ins with your work, but I've had two main run-ins I want to tell you about. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you about, we got to cover some stuff that I'm going to tell you about the run-ins. Sure. And then I'm going to tell you that Dr. (laughs) Randall here, do you guys know each other? Just met. Just he met. has a genuine uh, PhD in history. I heard that. He, heard, he, told, he, he told me about <laughs> that. <laughs> did he? he told. How did he bring it up? Uh, I asked him actually. Oh, okay. Yeah. So he didn't be like little thing you might not know about me. No, 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 no. He was quite modest. I heard there are. I was reading today that there, there's this article um, in Free Press. It's kind of. Uh, now that I brought it up, I'll tell you what the article. The article was a guy, a, a climatologist, that just got. There was a climatologist that wrote an op-ed in Free Press about publishing in the journal Nature. Mm-hmm. Okay, and was saying that it was talking about how biased Nature is toward what they want to publish, and they were publishing about wildfires in. California and how you need to de-emphasize issues not fitting with climate change to get published in nature. Like Mm -hmm. they know what they want, Mm -hmm. right? 
So like he's this climatologist is like, absolutely climate change is a big issue with wildfires in California, but there's all these other underlying things. 80% of California wildfires are human caused. Mm -hmm. Okay. But it's like, you're not going to write an article about changing human behaviors leading to wildfires or electrical transmission leading to wildfires or the need to bury electrical lines and not have overhead electrical lines due to wildfires. And that's not going to be of interest. Right. Climate change, boom, you're in. So they wrote this article in Free Press about what they had to leave out. Hmm. Like what you need to leave out to catch the eye of nature mm -hmm. to fit what they want, you know, what they've decided is scientific. And if it's if scientific is, you know, like a whale, a whale takes a wrong turn and goes up a river and dies in a river. Mm -hmm. You better say that climate change led to that whale going up that river <laughs> and it'll be in the paper. Right. <laughs> but anyways, they're saying they're talking about, there are like 60 times more PhDs. The hell is, here, pull this up, Corinne. <laughs> 60 times more PhDs now than in 1960? No kidding. Huh. 60 it's, times? That's not right. I, may, I wouldn't be surprised yeah. if it is. Meaning they just hand those things out like candy. <laughs> that's that's what, that how, was my experience. <laughs> <laughs> there, no, there's a lot more people, and there's a lot more people going to higher education than like, here, hold on. And Back in fewer, World War II. And a lot fewer tenure track jobs. Well, you know how they were, here's what they were blaming. So the point being, where is this thing? Okay, Karina, can you find it? I mean, I don't, I don't know if this is reputable. It's, this is historynewsnetwork.org. I have no idea who's behind this organization. Are you mm -hmm. familiar? Sure. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. Um, so this. Is it about how many PhDs are running around now? Yeah. Uh, history. Oh, well, you know what, actually? This is specifically about history. History bachelor's degrees are falling sharply while doctoral degrees in the discipline continue to rise. Hmm. Well, hmm. We're, we're Classic Randall. <laughs> what do you really think about a guy like Randall? <laughs> he, he's not as he's not as unique as he as he thought he was. Oh, I know. He's running around. He's got a mm. you see his new bumper sticker, ask me about my PhD. And then he's got that he's got that license plate. MT PhD. Yeah. It's a joke. <laughs> It's a joke. Uh, I made a series of <laughs> terrible mistakes. <laughs> it's a tough gig. I know. It's like a big target on your back. A <laughs> uh, couple things. So, oh, you know what another thing about the, the another thing I've been thinking about the news. I got a couple notes I made in my little note thing about um, that, that someday a historian should write an article about how much people love to talk about. If you get, if something bad happens to you in Yellowstone National Park, mm. how much people love talking about how dumb you are. <laughs> it doesn't, like, I was on the plane the other day and so, you know, whatever, like someone gets, someone gets run over by a buffalo in the park. Yeah. What is the story going to be? How look at this moron! Dumb they were. <laughs> How dumb they were! But Do you know what I mean? Even when people on the plane behind me are like those people, <laughs> you know, it's like I don't like I don't know. You know, I can see. You know, wait a minute, worrying no. an animal uh, a little no. bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dude, how many times? Of all people, I'm surprised you that don't you're, think uh, walking into a like. 
a thin layer of like hot spring crust and falling through is stupid. I just especially no. after you had to walk through Listen. like three dozen signs saying "Stop! Don't you idiot! Don't!" I like my instinct is to my instinct is to be like, "Yeah, I can see that happening." The guy that cooked the chicken in the hot spring. I know you love. You those were supposed guys. to get him on the show. Yeah. <laughs> Some guys tie a chicken on a rope and lower it in there and boil it, and everybody talks. Oh, those. They should know better. I'm like, that's a, it's like a totally interesting idea because uh, Osborne Russell, Journal of a Trapper, don't they talk about doing that? They do. I'm going to put this to, I'm to Elliot West. To the, yeah. <laughs> uh, I want to ask you a thing because I, sure. I, I endorse Osborne. Um, I always endorse Russell. Journal of a Trapper. And the thing I'll say about it is that historians like it, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. It's regarded, he was regarded sure. as spot on. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what surprised me? You know, another book I read uh, that I heard that historians are a little incredulous is um, Tough Trip Through Paradise. Really? Garcia? Yeah. yeah. Have you heard that he played a little fast and loose with the. I've never heard that. I, it's been years since I read it, but I loved it when I read it. In fact, I was over, drove through a Paradise Valley the other day just to see it again. Oh, is that right? Beautiful country. So yeah. you can cite uh, Tough Trip Through Paradise. And it's like like historians will cite Tough Trip Through Paradise, and it's regarded as okay. Sure, yeah, yeah. But historians love Journal of a Trapper. They do. It really rings true. A lot of a lot of the things that he says in there, and, and it, you know, jobs with other material that we have on fur trader and trappers and so forth. Got so it. I think it's sure. I think Good. It, yeah. I'm going to keep endorsing that. Um, what was I getting at? Oh, a lot of PhDs running around. Uh. A lot of smart people and get that somehow, gored by buffaloes. That's a lot, into a, lot of brilliant, a lot of brilliant people get gored by buffaloes and get blamed for being stupid when I think that they might have just been kind of like... Backing up into... Well, a, they might have been like, you know, I don't know, I'm going to go over there and get close to it. Backing up into buffalo with like <laughs> selfie sticks to see how close I'm, they can get. But Come okay, he, he, like, Brody, he, hear me out. Brody, we just worked on, okay, catch crayfish, count stars. Mm -hmm. And we encourage. And what do uh, we tell kids? What do we give tips? Kids tips on how what to do? Getting close to critters. How to sneak up on stuff. But you don't got to sneak up on <laughs> Some them. Yellowstone. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you get out of the car and there's one standing in the parking yeah. lot. I think the I think the problem that that's underlying all those stories is just that you somehow expect that people go into Yellowstone and not be stupid. You know, it's like it's like that's oh, the yeah. one place where people aren't supposed to break rules and just behave in all you know in all yeah. types of. I feel like you go anywhere in the world, people are doing stupid stuff. It's just that the stakes are higher when you have large animals around. But if here's the deal, if someone came to you, like like if someone came to me, someone here at work comes, and I wouldn't be surprised if this happened. I come into work and someone's like, "Oh, did you hear? Chili got gored by a mule deer, <laughs> right? He got gored by a mule deer." I wouldn't be like that idiot. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I just would be like, what happened? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I would well, automatically, impulsively blame the person who got mauled by yeah. something for stupidity. The way they do if it's in the park. Mm -hmm. Well, the story I remember, though, was a, the woman who went up to the bison, got right in front of it with a flash camera, you know, took a close-up of the of his head from the front. Sure. And, and she got gored. Well, I mean, what do you expect? That's stupid. She expected really to get a nice stupid. picture. That's what she expected. That. I can't go into I think, I think, I think the picture was blurred. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
the other thing I wanted to talk about, but I can't give too many details. I got a friend who's a prosecutor in this state. He's a county prosecutor. And he was telling me the other day about he had a thing he's working on where these guys in a trailer park got in a fight. Like this one being like a prosecuted issue. They got in a fight over a last piece of fried chicken (laughs) (laughs) that someone then impregnated the chicken with glass, shards of glass. And a fight broke out so bad. The fight broke out, went over the fence and into I-90 and shut the highway down. (laughs) Um... No Next comment. <laughs> no, no, another for comment. Here's the other thing that's super important that I keep wanting to get to. My buddy, one of my main best friends from growing up, and we're still friends today. He comes up to our fish shack every year. He has a new, he's a teacher. Okay. He has a business, a summertime business of, he's got a roving bar. And I'm going to explain this. Damn it. Okay, if you live around Traverse City, Michigan, here's what you need to who who you need to hire for your events. This is the this is so this is a good very good buddy, my Matt Droz from growing up. We still hang out. I was just with him, and because he's a teacher, he has a summertime business he created called Roaming, Roaming NorthernMichigan.com, but it's not. It's Roaming No My. So Roaming. (laughs) N-O-M-I dot com. I'll revisit this in a minute. He has a camper trailer that he rigged up as a bar. But when you have an event, you get married, whatever, 25th wedding anniversary, bar mitzvah, I don't know. Uh, You call him. You place your liquor order. He picks it up. Okay? So he's not selling booze. Mm -hmm. You buy your booze for your event like you normally would. He then shows up with his motorhome with all the mixers and specialty drinks that he crafts for your thing, pulls his camper in, and then your guests go to the bar window to get cocktails. And there's no money changing hands. No money changes hands. Fantastic. No money changes hands. He operates out of Traverse City, Michigan. Packages, prices, everything at the website. Roaming. No my roaming n o m i dot com. Matt Dros. Plan an event just to call him. <laughs> I like it. Like if you're getting married somewhere else, get married there. <laughs> and call roaming and, and go to roamingnomy.com and patronize my good friend's business. He likes to hunt and fish. Got it. <laughs> He should start a franchise. Yep. Take over the country. Another thing I've been wanting to talk about. Yeah, I invented an old saying. I'm the only guy I know that ever invented an old saying. Meaning. You know, like stitching time saves nine. Like yeah, but old. You, you said you invented it. Yeah, I know. I thought of one that you'd think was old. Oh, okay. And it has to do with like if you send your kids out to pick pole beans, and you'd be like, pick every pole bean. And then you go out and look, and there's pole beans they didn't pick. Because mm-hmm. it's hard to find them. Or like you send your wife's friend out to pick pole beans. <laughs> and she's like, oh, I got them all. And you go on looking, they didn't get them all. 
they didn't look carefully enough. The old saying I invented is, is I could see applications in finance and other things. <laughs> a okay. fresh, a fresh set of eyes will always find more beans. Hmm. Uh. So, you, <laughs> right? So, like, let's say someone's like, whatever. I don't know. You know, you see implications in finance, whatever. Glassing. Fresh set eye. Yeah, exactly. But your buddy's like, no, I glass that hillside good. <laughs> and you sit down and you're like, you know what, buddy? Fresh set eyes will always find more beans. It doesn't There's really... a buck right over there. <laughs> Roll off the tongue very well. You don't think so? Yeah. Katie thinks it's like useless. She does, my wife doesn't think it's a good saying, good old saying at all. I just think mm. it needs a couple more drafts. You sound like a you're, real dork when you say it. Yeah. <laughs> you do sound like a total dork when you say it. Fresh I, set of eyes will always find more beans, Randall. I, I've never really thought about finding beans. <laughs> so. No. I'm going to work on it. Think about it, Phil. Maybe yeah. Phil can workshop that. Sure. Um, that's it for now. I got a lot more stuff written on here, but we got to get on to what we're talking about. Oh, Mer <laughs> so here's the deal. This is the, the, uh, our esteemed guest probably wondering why he's here, but we're going to have a lot of time to talk about <laughs> <laughs> But we're going to get to something from your state. Elliot so West, a, were you born in Arkansas? No, I was born in Texas, in Dallas. Oh, you're born in Dallas, Texas, but you're at University of Arkansas. Yeah, I've been there for, well, I retired a couple of years ago. I've been, I've been there for 43, 44 years. Did they give you that? What's that good title you get when you retire, but you remain in good standing? Emeritus. Emeritus. Are you emeritus? I'm emeritus. That's sweet, man. <laughs> uh, Randall? Have you heard of... <laughs> no. The, the best thing Randall's been able to tell me about his PhD is when he checks a book out from the library, he gets it as long as he wants. Aww. <laughs> that makes it all worthwhile. He doesn't five, have those librarians five, chasing five years, after him all the time. Five years of study and you get that, right? Oh, yeah. That right? yeah. <laughs> librarians aren't always after him for the 78 It's the, small, it's the very, cents. very small privileges in life that make it all worth it. This is from Springdale, Arkansas. So September 23rd, we've talked about this a whole bunch. We actually for a while talked about that we were going to like start our own, which we never got around to. But this one's back on. The world champion squirrel cook-off. Springdale, Arkansas, September 23rd, in partnership with Arizona Fish and Game. Free event. Arkansas. Arkansas. What did I say? Arizona. Arizona. I did? We could probably cut Arkansas. that out, right, Phil? Yeah. Well, yeah it's it's a lot of work. One state that's not going to have a squirrel cook-off would be Arizona. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Springdale, Arkansas, September 23rd, in partnership with, oh, that's where I screwed up, in partnership with Arkansas Fish and Game. Free event. It's a creative event in competitive cooking and squirrel. Dishes must contain 80% squirrel and be prepared on site. That's a good tidbit because I've judged wild game cook-offs before where it's like the, the, the game part becomes an afterthought. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you could put like one squirrel in a pot of chili and be like, that squirrel chili. 80% yeah. squirrel. So you are showcasing squirrel. They have a Facebook deal. So when you're describing where to find something on Facebook, do you include like Facebook.com or what do you write? How do you say I it? I guess, yeah, because I guess if you don't have Facebook, you can still type in this URL and get there. Facebook.com slash Squirrel Cookoff. Yep. We'll take you there. And it's uh, organized by Clay's good friend. Clay, Clay's going to be there this year, I think. He is? Yeah, I think so. Here's what I don't like. They're billing it 
They're making it like a war on squirrels. Yeah, this squirrels is cause millions of dollars of damage. Listen, don't. <laughs> <laughs> I still want people to go, but this is not about squirrels being bad. Come on. I don't. Um, Typically, I think of these things as a celebration of yes. the animal, right? Yeah, like house fires are caused by squirrels. They got all kinds of strange things <laughs> listen, in here. Listen, here, I still want you to go to the squirrel cook-off, <laughs> but you need to go from a place of love, not from a place of... Go, go from a position of love for squirrels, not from a position of squirrel hatred. No, I think, I think it's also that for anyone who needs like uh, extra justification to you know push them over the edge if they might not otherwise attend they're being reminded but the last thing you want to create is like another a squirrel panic. there's a lot of things to love like about hunting but people are like well if i didn't hunt it, it's kind your of your house would be full of deer they're like I'm going sure after the them the way people go so after coyotes go. yeah exactly yeah. things like yeah. that <laughs> it's strange yeah 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 I don't know what to do about all also, that. Also, I'm not a sure. A ringing endorsement. <laughs> no, listen. I am all for. Did you see me pounding this table? I am all for the squirrel cook-off. Yeah. I just think that it has to be, it's from a place of, I love. You got to approach like, it with the right I have mindset. I've never in my life seen a squirrel and been like, yeah, damn it, a squirrel. <laughs> do you know what I mean? You yeah. need to go down there and enter a pine squirrel recipe with Jimmy. That'd be a great idea. You'd no one else away. would have pine squirrels. you carried away. There. I still like. I'm still mad at my mother for cutting some of the oak trees down in her yard hmm. because of squirrels. The squirrel da- damage to squirrel habitat. Uh, we recently had an episode where we were with the founder, the creator of the Merlin app at Cornell. Someone had a hot tip um, about the Merlin app. Get a Bluetooth speaker and play back bird songs. This is very effective. Hmm. I'm, we, I wish you'd have brought it up. I don't know if they, do they frown on it? Maybe they frown on it at Merlin. We'll have to see if they write yeah, in and I'm say not that sure. they don't like this idea. I can ask idea. Jesse. Meaning, uh, it works. It's very effective to call in birds. In fact, we would, so the other day I was sitting there with my boy in a little pop-up blind. I'm going to pull this up. I, I got a gripe with the Merlin app too. Just, uh, and I know they listen to the show. It does. Uh, the the, the first, this is the only bird I never they it does not pick up a it won't pick up a gray jay. Hmm. Listen to this. So here here's from my Merlin app. I'm gonna turn it up. <clears throat> this is a recording I made this weekend. So that's a pine squirrel. Okay, but listen to him again. I hit him again and again and again with Merlin. Listen carefully. That's a gray jay. Listen. It doesn't get it. It it registers it. You see it show up, obviously. It will not identify that thing. It's the only failure I've ever seen Merlin. I wonder if it's too short of a... No, he was going. Okay. Boom, okay. boom, boom. And there's probably other vocalizations, but it will not detect that vocalization. Oh, that squirrel is really, really upfront and loud. I wonder if it's like, yeah, that like and it's, it's, tech I think it's, audio... No. Clashing with a lot of the frequencies is my guess. You think so? I think so. Comes from an audio engineer's uh Here's my kid. Here's my you want to hear my kid criticizing me? Dad, 
<laughs> You're so what? What did he say? You're so slow. Uh. He didn't like <laughs> when we'd go to pick off a bird. He didn't like how long it'd take me to activate the app. It was mm. frustrating. He thought you should just like let it run for hours on end, and I didn't like that approach. I mean, it seems like if you're playing on a Bluetooth speaker, if there's someone else in the area using the Merlin app, that it could cause a feedback loop where all of a sudden there's a no because like Merlin's, Merlin's too smart. If I've played bird, I've played uh-huh. recordings, and I haven't done it much. I've played recordings, and something gets lost. Interesting. So if you play, we could do. I don't know. Try it right now, but. If you play Merlin, mm-hmm. a recording of a bird, it won't flag the bird. Hmm. I don't know if it's just because things are too compressed. Like if something's like too compressed, Phil probably will answer that. What do you think that is, Phil? Uh, honestly, I, that kind of baffles me. Really? I, I feel like it should be able to, to pick it out. Yeah. Hmm. However, I, we have a book called the Bird Song Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, and you type in bird calls. And it's going through like a little chintzy little, there's like a speaker baked into the book mm-hmm. and it might be that that speaker just sucks. I don't know, but Merlin won't identify those birds, but I could run around with this. I could go into any area with pine squirrels and we did it for, we were just messing around this weekend. We would just walk into a spot and play that squirrel <laughs> and just no sooner did he shut up, all of a sudden the woods just come alive with like, <laughs> squirrels replying to it years ago i was reading a thing where they uh they were working on a study with vervet monkeys who they have these different warning calls mm-hmm. these researchers realizing that they had that they have a warning call for a threat on the ground and they have a warning call for a threat from an avian predator and they seem to have a different noise mm-hmm they make on the ground in the air and they would record the calls and play it and monitor what evasive actions they took. If it's a threat on the ground, they would do one thing mm-hmm. like bust into the tree. If it's an overhead threat, they would respond differently to it to like reduce their risk from a harpy Eagle or whatever the hell preys on them. I don't remember what it was that preys on them. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't be a harpy cause that's South America, but these mm-hmm. I think are African. Anyways, you could burn out, <clears throat> you could burn them out on a monkey. If you record a monkey doing a warning call <clears throat> and then start playing that monkey to his buddies all the time, mm-hmm. after a while, his buddies, he loses credibility with his buddies. The monkey who cried eagle. Yeah, he's the monkey that cried. <laughs> he's the monkey that cried wolf. And you could play it where everybody's like, oh, Bob, he always is doing that. <laughs> yeah. And insurance... So I was using the term inherent vice, which is one of my favorite movies. I like it. It's one of those rare instances where a movie is so much better than a book. Thomas Pynchon's inherent vice was made into a a film, which was a wonderful movie. And we were talking about when we had David Grant on, I think it was when we had David Grant on, we were talking about the concept of inherent vice, which, which is a nautical term. Someone wrote in, a guy named Thomas wrote in, He's from, he's from a insurance. He's a Marine insurance specialist. Can I just say his name? Sure. He's the president of Allen R. Mott Agency, Inc., Marine insurance specialist. He says, Steve refers to inherent vice as things you can't control, like getting wet. Inherent vice is the ability of a thing to destroy itself. 
Fruit can rot. Marijuana can actually light itself on fire. Metal can rust. Getting wet would not be under inherent vice. Getting wet is an external factor. Caused by an external factor. Caused by an external factor. Mm -hmm. So like the idea of inherent vice and shipping, if the load gets wet, it's not like, ah, that just happens. Someone screwed up when it gets wet. Then he goes on to say, never thought I would be the type to email a correction. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Someone else wrote in with another one. When we had the writer David Grant on about the wager, we talked about uh, sayings that come from naval, the naval world. He says, you guys fell down a rabbit hole on ship terms and sayings on the podcast with David Grant. Here's another. Do you believe this? I don't I'm know. I'm wondering. I'm looking it up. <laughs> I didn't look it up. He's saying that the word shit comes from ye old days. I think he's off. Um, you look it up, origin, old English. I don't know how to, how to pronounce it. S-C-I-T-T-E of Germanic origin. Shite, maybe. Shite. Bags of mm-hmm. manure. Maybe maybe our uh, maybe our esteemed guest has heard of this. I don't know. <laughs> Bags of manure. I deal in that a lot. Okay. <laughs> if you stored bags of manure within the depths of a ship, they could get seawater on and makes them unusable. They would write S H I T on bags of nur. Store high in transit. I don't know. It sounds, that sounds fake. You think it sounds? I think it sounds fake. Yeah. I've heard that before, but I don't. I mean the the etymology. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't match up with with the Google right because the German is shite. Yeah, right. Oh, mm-hmm. the Germans mm-hmm. were using that yeah. word for us. Dung. Word Dung shit shite. first originally appeared around one thousand years ago and can be traced back to the Old Norse origin skita. Skeeter. Skeeters. Right. I'm just saying, there's like yeah. A yeah this, this game, this guy might be wrong, but I kind of I like the. Story should we leave it in, it. or should Phil pull it out of the show? Yeah, let's leave it in. All right. Someone wrote in. Kryn likes this one. I don't know. Well, we if don't... you were tasked with the decision of picking four American authors to be etched into the side of a mountain, who would they be? I'll just leave that one hanging for for listeners. Elliot West and I was Randall. Gonna... <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was going to tell you. Yeah. Uh, do you know that Randall reviewed your work? He Can you imagine the audacity? I did tell him that. <laughs> I did tell him that. <laughs> Let's start with that, Randall. Set the scene for us. Well, I was in a graduate seminar uh, taught by Dan. And... Uh, each week, Dan had, Flores. Dan Flores. Yep. No. Each week, you had to review a book and uh, from a different period of time, or I think some of them were probably thematic. Weeks. Each week, yep. You read so everybody in the seminar reads a book and reviews it, and then you get together on Monday or Tuesday or whenever the the class is, and you just explain your book, and Dan kind of pieces them all together and explains how they're in conversation with one another, and that was kind of the structure of those seminars, but. One week, I had the pleasure of revi- of reviewing uh, the Last Indian War, uh, probably two years after it came out, and uh, stuck with me. So, would I'd, you like to share a passage with us? Mm. 
I mean, you proposed this to me, didn't you? That you'd share a passage? <laughs> I read the passage. I, there's just a, there are a lot of things that are attributed to me in the course of a conversation having to do with my ed- educational background that really have never once escaped my mouth. So, um, but yeah, Corinne, if you'd like to now pull that gonna, up, he's going to deny his Montana PhD license plate now, bro. <laughs> Here. But yeah, it was, a, it was a memorable book. I think there are a couple. Uh, I just I appreciated. I always appreciate books that make a a story that you think is a story about one thing speak to bigger stories and bigger narratives. And so that was one of those books that kind of opened my eyes to um, how the past is all in you know different parts of the past are in conversation with one another. Well, thank you. Yeah. Do you have it pulled up? Mm-hmm. No, don't. <laughs> should, should Corinne read it? How, no, no. how long is the passage? It's. I, you I just shared. The best passage. I don't need passage. to read any of this. No. This no, you don't. You know what? You don't need to, Randall. Was it a negative review? No, no. It was, was it glowing? It was quite complimentary. I, oh. I actually, I only sent along the the excerpt excerpts huh? from it because I. I thought you might find them useful in preparation for the, our conversation. Oh, that's why you shared them. Yeah, yeah. No, it wasn't a show and tell. <laughs> if it was, I would have had a I would have had a photo of the original with the sticker at the top. But yeah, I thought you might find it. Oh, you were trying to help me out as a host. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I appreciate that. Instead, I just put another great big target on my back. I Got guess. <laughs> Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of six sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at twc.health slash meat eater. But you got to use the promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater. Okay. At twc.health slash meat eater. Hey man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch. So when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, well, what's the catch? But it turns out there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. 
To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Man, I'm just coming back uh, not too long ago from youth turkey season in Wisconsin. Now, last year at youth turkey season, it rained and snowed the whole time. This year at youth turkey season, it was in the 70s and even up to 80. So me and my kids are pouring it to it. And after a while, I realized they didn't drink anything all day and they haven't drank anything all day. Well, that's why it's important to get hydrated and have something you're going to like to help you, encourage you to get hydrated. doesn't matter. Outdoor events, turkey hunting, playing sports, beach days, mountain adventures. Summer requires extraordinary hydration that's built for everyday dehydrating moments. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients in a single stick. It's clear why Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. Tear, pour, live more. One stick plus 16 ounces of water hydrates better than water alone. I'll say that again. Hydrates better than water alone. Turn your ordinary water into extraordinary hydration with Liquid IV. Get 20% off your first order of Liquid IV when you go to liquidiv.com and you use code meat eater at checkout that's 20 percent off your first order when you shop better hydration today using promo code meat eater at liquidiv.com so elliot west uh, let's start out how many when you look at your career as a historian um and you've been in, you've been in the biz how long 50 years do you do you measure it do you measure your career as a historian in terms of how many books you've written, how, like, you know what I mean? Like, how do you, how do you sum it up? Right. Well, uh, that would be one way. I think, uh, I think I think more in terms of, uh, of teaching. Okay. Uh, how many uh, teaching to public university, a state university. So yeah, big classes, you know, um, uh, I, I try to figure out, so in fact, I dedicated a book of, Few, few books ago to my students, and I sat down and figured out it was probably had somewhere between ten and twelve thousand students. Oh, really? So you think in terms of that? I've also worked. That's a lot, a lot of influence. That's man. a lot of influence, and yeah. I worked. And you have them for a lot of hours. I do indeed. Yeah, they would confirm that. Yes, they would. <laughs> the captive, captive audience. <laughs> right. like, oh my God! It's like I ever shut up, you know? And, yeah. But he also, I, I try to work. I've tried to work a lot. With public school teachers uh, to encourage, you know, better teaching of American history. Oh, is that right? I've had yeah. you know hundreds of them over the years, and they've had, of course, each one of them has had hundreds, thousands of students. So how do you of, how do you interact with public school teachers? Like in, in what capacity? Well, there are different programs. Um, one that I continue to work with, the Gilder Lehrman Institute um, in New York. It's a wonderful institute to encourage. Uh, good teaching of American history, and they sponsor seminars uh, over the years. And I've done, oh gosh, probably 10 or 15 of those. Um, and you meet with a week, uh, for a week with school teachers from all around the country, some, some from abroad, uh, and you choose a topic. I taught one, I was uh, mentioning a moment ago, taught one in Missoula for uh, four years on Lewis and Clark. Mm. So you have teachers come from all over the country, all over the world, uh, and uh you try to have the seminars in, in the place that you're teaching about, you know. So we would talk about Lewis and Clark and sort of 
pick that expedition apart. And then we on a Wednesday we would, we would go up Lolo Pass to the uh, you know to uh, Traveler's Rest and then up yep. Lolo Pass and then back and sort of around the country. So it's a it's a great way to encourage students to identify not just in terms of new material but you know the place itself because you really can't especially Western history you can't understand the story if you don't don't know the place you know if you can't yeah. go there. <clears throat> what do you, what do you think is wrong with how American you know. If you said to, to be to do better at teaching American history, where do people fall short in teaching American history in your in your view? Well, until fairly recently, of course, you leave out a lot that's pertinent. Uh, I think we need to bring in more areas like uh, environmental history, mm-hmm. the kind of thing that your podcast deals with a great deal. Um, beyond that, I think you need to uh, I think you need to talk about uh, the larger contexts. You know, to take something of like Lewis and Clark, it's a fascinating story. It's like an American epic. You know, it's like an American creation story almost. Uh, and it, it, you get, you're caught up in this uh, this sort of a mythic pattern where you think this is a, a un, absolutely unique event. But in fact, you know, this is part of global exploration, you know, and uh, something that was happening all over, all over the planet Earth. Uh, and these were just two guys among many you know, who were doing mm-hmm. this. You didn't understand it in terms of what what does the expedition teach us about uh, Indian peoples at that time? What does it teach us about science of that time? You know, so it's a it's a big story. It's a big story. It's a, it's a distinctly American story, uh, and the journals, of course, are a, a masterpiece of American literature. Uh, so it's our story, but it's also the world's story, and I think it helps to put all of American history in that larger context if you can. You know. Earlier, I mentioned there's two areas where I had kind of the main two areas where I brushed up against your work over the years is years ago, I was going to write a book. I wanted to write a book about the Nez Perce War. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's quite a story. Well, I started working on it. My little, what I was doing and I got going on it. I was just going to walk that whole, Hmm. I was, well, I use my pack raft. Mm-hmm. I just had a backpack with a pack raft in it. And I got started on it. I was going to walk and pack raft that whole route. Um, and I got going on it, but just the, the, the time commitment and other things prevented me. So I read your book at the time, your book on the Nez Perce War. Mm-hmm. The other area, and this is kind of where I, one of the areas where I want to jump in talking to you. Um, and I, I talked about it on the show even. You had an essay. It was collected in one of your books. Um it was one of your books that had like, there was a collection of four or five bigger pieces. Mm-hmm. You had an essay about how old European involvement and influence on the Great Plains, how far back that went. Right. And in it, you make the point, and this just kind of, I guess maybe I was aware of it, but hadn't thought about it. It just blew my mind. You're like, when Lewis and Clark stepped down into the Great Plains, there were Native Americans on the Great Plains at that time who had been to Europe. That's right. Yeah. Met the King of France mm-hmm. and came back home again on the Great Plains at the time Lewis and Clark. And in the American imagination, it's like that they it was just right. that they went into this place. That's right. This untouched. Unhistoried. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, and then you no got into just yeah. the the... I think it was hundreds of years. If you go back to people like these kind of like offshoots of the Coronado expedition, that yeah. they were coming into an area that had been deeply influenced. That's right. 
Yeah, the the what you were talking about the uh, these uh, Indians from the Kansas area, actually Kansas and Missouri, who had been to the court uh, the court of France, of course, of uh, Louis the Fifteenth. Now that was, a, but that was in seventeen. 20, 1725, 1726. This is a long time before Lewis and Clark. So, so you know, for the image I, I, I love to imagine might have happened was that uh, at the time that we, the American, you know, the, the east to west frontier was edging its way into the interior. That's what Lewis and Clark would you know, be, be part of. Uh, if you go back to when that, when this was, 1720s, you know, there was a governor. Uh, territorial governor of, of colonial governor of Virginia, you know, who had a group of people he uh, he called a, the um, uh, uh, the Knights of the Golden Horseshoe, and they would uh, they loved to go explore the far west, right? And they and he would come back with this reports of this this magnificent river they had found and this beautiful valley. Uh, it was the uh, uh, it was the Shenandoah. You know, these are people who were, you know, they were just south of Washington, D.C. Yeah. And they were talking about, you know, penetrating deep into the American interior. At the very time that they would be doing that and talking about going back home, you know, and sitting around uh, drinking, uh, drinking port, uh, smoking cigars. At the very time that they're talking about going to the far west, there might well have been Indians in central Kansas reminiscing about Paris. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Oh, the women's divine. You know, <laughs> right. So, it's a, uh, so that's that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about. The larger the larger context. Uh, Lewis and Clark were not entering this place. Lewis's famous quote: "You know, when they set off, and that's from the Mandan villages. You know, the, the land where the foot of civilized man is never trodden. Right? Yep. No, no. <laughs> There'd been a lot of trotting going on before before that. Right? <laughs> what do you think was the biggest? At the time, Lewis and Clark were were encountering on the Northern Plains tribes, and and you know, in all fairness, they encountered people. They encountered people who hadn't directly interacted with Euro Americans or Europeans. That's right. Or, yeah, Nez Perce, for example, the Nez Perce, uh, the uh, Lewis and Clark were the first white people that uh, the Nez Perce had met. Hmm. Yet, they had horses. They had horses. So what what do you think was the biggest um prior to the actual arrival of we'll just use Europeans, I guess. Prior to the arrival of Europeans, the thing I always think about, we had these there's these three huge impacts mm-hmm. that pre that, that preceded the actual presence of Europeans would be horses, metal, and disease. Right. I mean, would you is that a fair statement? And of those, which do you think when, when Lewis and Clark was contacting people, which of those influences was most, was probably most impactful in shaping what they experienced as, you know, native America at that time. Yeah. At that. Uh, So horses, horses, Mm -hmm. like they were seeing something different than what had been. That's right. Well, and disease, you know, Lewis and Clark arrived uh, when they when they go up through North Dakota. What's today North Dakota? <clears throat> they talked about coming across these abandoned villages, uh, a place called Double Ditch. Today, uh, well, those were abandoned because of sm- uh, smallpox. 
that had appeared 1780, you know, 20 years, a bit more than 20 years before they were there, devastated there. It's estimated that 20,000 Indians in the Pacific Northwest died of smallpox because of that, that, uh, that epidemic. Uh, this started in the East, highly influential with the uh, outcome of the revolution. One of the reasons that we were able to hold off against the English is the English uh, troops were devastated, you know, by malaria and by smallpox. So that was a great influence that preceded that preceded them. But so were, but I think horses uh, maybe at least as much. In fact, there's a connection there. Uh, smallpox, of course, have been in the Western Hemisphere for a long, from the very early period, from uh, the period of, Corn, uh, period of uh, Cortez. Um, and it made its way all the way into the American Southwest quite early. And so the uh, peoples of the Southwest, uh, Comanches and Apaches and Navajos and others, have been devastated by smallpox uh, for decades, decades uh, before Lewis and Clark. But uh, in 1780, it, it swept up from the south out of Mexico, went from the east coast down to Mexico, and then up into up into the uh, the Americas, uh, and it hit the southwest again. But then, then it goes all the way up the Missouri Valley. It goes all the way in the Pacific Northwest, devastating, devastating the Indians there. Why? Why then, and not before? Mm -hmm. Horses. Horses. Smallpox, when you catch smallpox, uh, you have about 10 days to transmit it to another person. So when it arrived first in the, uh, in the Southwest early on, uh, people's natural uh, response was to panic. You know, run away, run away, right? Mm. But it's literally running. They're on foot. Uh, and they, by the time they reach these, you know, virgin soil, by the time they reach people who have never been infected by this, uh, they're either dead or they have, can no longer pass it along. So it was the, uh, the slow movement of these people out of the Southwest uh, that, that, that allowed the people farther north uh, to be free of it. Then they came, then the horses. Yeah. Horses. Spreading first out of around uh, 1680, but by 1780, by 1780, the horse cultures had flourished all the way, had developed and flourished all the way across what's today, you know, the far west, the Great Plains and the Pacific Northwest. And so people now, when they panic and they flee, they're doing it on horseback. And the horses allowed the transmission of smallpox and other diseases in ways that had never been before. So the horse in that sense, you know, was one, on the one hand, a great uh, benefit to these people, allowed them to revolutionize their life, you know, to this huge burst of power and creativity uh, and expansion, uh, mm -hmm. but it also uh, killed them. You know what I'm thinking about as you talk about that is the uh, COVID, in exactly. the COVID in the airplane. That's exactly right. <laughs> you know, exactly I mean, like, right. That you could have an epidemic go from isolated to global in, I don't know, months? Weeks, really. Yeah, uh, yeah. In fact, I've uh, written a recent article on that, uh, comparing uh, the COVID epidemic today to the cholera epidemics in the in the nineteenth century, and making exactly that exactly that point. So this is really what I was talking about a moment ago about the horses and smallpox. That's really one step in what has, of course, become increasingly uh, a fact of life. Uh, we're talking about the shrinkage, the the effective shrinkage of the world mm -hmm. through transportation. Horses were an important part of that, but that shrinkage, of course, continues. So these poor folks in Wuhan, China. Uh, catch this disease, however they got it. Uh, three weeks later, it's in uh, it's in the Seattle, 
Yeah, it's just, it's just <laughs> it's amazing, just, man. It's yeah. just really quite astonishing. And you see it, of course, over and over and over. West Nile virus. Um, just, you know, name a disease that has hit this country uh, in the last uh, 150 years, uh, and that's how it got here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting point, that the, 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 way, about, the yeah. way those horses did that. Yeah. Do you think that, we've talked about this in the past, that the, the way, so horses being introduced by the Spanish, mm-hmm. was, in your view, was that incident, the Pueblo Revolt, was that really, in your mind, was that really sort of the, the, the beginning of the spread of horses to all the nomadic, what, what would become the nomadic bison, you know, the equestrian right, buffalo right. hunting tribes yeah. of, the, of the Great Plains? Yeah. Like, do, do you think if the Pueblo Revolt hadn't happened, would that have been delayed significantly by 100 years? It or was seems it just, like a very tidy, yeah. neat and tidy explanation. <laughs> yeah, uh, it is. It is and it isn't. Uh, it clearly had a very important impact. It did. But there had been, the spread, the horse, horses had spread before 1680, but it was very localized. Comanches had them. Uh, Navajos had them and used them very effectively, raiding on the Pueblos and, uh, and, the, and the Spanish. Uh, so there, it had sort of, I think it was sort of a leakage. You know, the Spanish would work really hard to try to control those horses because they knew what they were. You know, they, they, the horses allowed people a kind of mobility and a power to maneuvering that uh, they had never had before and that could be used very effectively against the Spanish. And so they were, you know, it was, it was a capital offense, a capital offense to sell a horse to an Indian. <laughs> but <laughs> wasn't it really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'd read that, but I'd, never, I'd read that they had tried, that they really wanted to control information about horses and control dissemination of horses. Yeah, that's absolutely true. But they, they you can't, of course. By the time, it's impossible. but but go ahead. 1680, um, it's very clear. You can, you know, the record shows very clear, very clearly that uh, after 1680, the horses spread very rapidly to the north, and they follow exactly those trading routes that, that precede Columbus. Mm. Uh, it's just his traditional trading routes that go up to uh, first up through the Rockies, incidentally, interestingly, and then into the Pacific Northwest. Nez Perce, you know, the Shoshones and Nez Perce had horses within 30 years of the Pueblo Revolt. <laughs> 30 years. That's incredible. <laughs> and then they spread from there out onto the plains. So about, so within 100 years, if you go forward from 1680 to 1780, Horse cultures have developed everywhere in the West that they eventually would. It's done. It's a done deal in 100 years. By the time they they made, the horses made it up here to say Mm -hmm. Montana, Mm -hmm. what, like, how did the tribes here, what was their understanding of where they came from? Like, what was, like, they had to have some story or history about (laughs) where these things that had never been there before. Yeah, yeah. There are also uh, tr- traditions develop, of course, about where they are, and uh, quite often, not universal, uh, but quite often, it's sort of a gift from God, uh, uh, and they're described as things like uh, uh, like elk dogs. Oh, is that right? <laughs> elk dogs, because uh, like an elk, uh, they're big and powerful, right? Like a dog, they're domesticated. Mm-hmm. You know? That's mm-hmm. what I say, an elk dog. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that's what I'm gonna start they, calling them. Man. But there was no, there is no knowledge of them coming they from de- some other 
culture, some other place. Eventually, they just, eventually there were. Uh, it's quite clear where they're coming from. You know, yeah. once, once it develops, now Lewis and Clark, uh, when they meet the Shoshones, that, that famous meeting, you know, where Chicago meets her brother, mm -hmm. and they're starving for horses. They have to have horses. They they go on with canoes up the Missouri, you know, and uh, to the uh, to the to the Continental Divide. But to get down the other side, they've got to have horses. And so the Shoshones were the obvious source of them once they met them. But if you read those journals during their meeting with the Shoshones, um, they report seeing Spanish brands. On some of those. Oh, horses. they do. So I these never, are horses that, that these are horses that not that not, are alive not, from the yeah, Spanish. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. it, it, they weren't simply descendants of horses that were had been spread northward. They had they had that those particular horses had come from New Mexico. Seriously? <laughs> yeah. So this is a, you know it's a very vigorous, <laughs> very vigorous uh, uh, operation. Not, that's so weird. I've never. I feel like that'd be like a that'd be like a real talked about aspect of Lewis and Clark. But I've never heard that. It's true. Just read, go back and read the journals. Yeah, Spanish brands Spanish on horses, brands, uh, yep. horses up there. Yep, yep. Huh. In this case, Montana. You know, I want to stay on a little bit of this. I, I want to talk to you. You've written a lot about mining. I want to talk to you mm -hmm. about gold rushes and mining mm -hmm. too. But uh, I want to stay on this <clears throat> this theme for a minute here. In uh, you have a new book out, which I have. Where is it? Oh, right there. sitting right in front of me. Continental Reckoning. Huge book. It is, yeah. <laughs> the American West and the Age of Expansion. I, I make a habit, unlike most uh, hosts, I make a habit of saying, I read it or I didn't read it. I haven't read it. Okay. <laughs> However, <laughs> I read the index and then used that to go in and check little certain things out. Um, And I got to... Last night I was laying there reading some passages you had about the the Indian Wars in the West, mm -hmm. um, and, and you kind of you treat it as victory there for victory there for America was just a certainty, and not only that, but you talk about what we spent on the Indian wars relative to other military endeavors, mm -hmm. the human cost of the Indian wars <laughs> relative to other military endeavors really puts it into perspective. Yeah. Meaning we, you know, the union, I can't remember what you had. I should find, I, I should have taken a better note, but I mean the union in a day in the civil war would, I think that maybe this is what how the support whatever you use. The, there, there were certain days during the Civil War the Union lost more soldiers than they were going to use, and the, than they were going to lose in the Indian Wars of the West. That's right. Antietam, of course, which is the bloodiest battle of the Civil War, the bloodiest battle in American history in terms of losses. <clears throat> now, this is strict. This is just on the Union side. This doesn't. We're not talking about the Confederates. The Union lost more men in in this uh, two-square-mile area over about nine hours. Then they lost over 30 years uh, and two million acres, uh, two uh, square miles uh, in the far west. That, it, it just blows my mind because the amount of mental energy I have spent on... <laughs> The amount of mental energy I've spent on how Custer managed to get a couple couple hundred guys killed one day, and then you go and look at the Antietam, like that'd be like a better place to spend your time. It's like, 
Not how did a guy lose a couple hundred, but how did you lose thousands of people? <laughs> yeah, that's right. In 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 a blink of an eye. Yeah. But yeah. it really it does it occupies this like I don't know. I mean, I know they're big Civil War buffs, but just it's it, I guess because it went on so long. But you talk, like you kind of paint it like it was sort of. A, a light lift and other you get into <laughs> no i mean just because yeah, yeah. the, the numbers like i didn't realize you were saying you had to think that by the time some of the i think it was by the time a little bighorn or by the time of the nez Perce war mm -hmm. in the pacific northwest whites outnumbered indians 60 to 1 that's right, that's right. i mean it was just yeah, i guess it, some of these statistics put in the perspective that it was probably not a thing like will we win it's just like how quickly will we do this like how quickly will we perform this thing we're, we've set out to do? Yeah, you know, and it wasn't a when you when you just look at the numbers of people moving into the West, it was just it's overwhelming. That's that's the point, of course, that I was trying to make there. Uh, Indians in the far West were defeated. Uh, the military came in, you know, when things got really nasty, and they just you had to step in. There wasn't any other way to avoid it to, to control this particular group of Indians. Most mm -hmm. of them, of course didn't resist like the Lakotas or Comanches or others. Most just sort of, you know, saw the writing on the walls and okay, you know, we'll deal with it. Um, but uh, if you look at it in those terms, uh, Indian Wars were just, uh, you know, I think I use the metaphor of uh, an Indian War, Indian Wars were like a, a period at the end of a long paragraph, right? Mm -hmm. It wasn't the paragraph. The paragraph was this, 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 juggernaut of settlement that comes in. Yeah. Uh, and then like, there, you, like you mentioned the, the disease issue and the disease of just like yeah. depopulating That's right. That's people right. and taking and eliminating cultural structure. Yeah. Eliminating cultural memory. And then you have this fragment that just gets overwhelmed by immigration. Right. That's right. And I think, uh, I mentioned before the need to put this in the larger context of environmental history, mm -hmm. because what this was in these years, the period that I cover here, which is about 1848 or 50 to about 1880, was the greatest environmental transportation, uh, transformation, uh, convulsion by far in American history. And I would argue that there are very few times in world history, you know, when an area that large had been so completely transformed, so so massively trans environmentally transformed. And that means, of course, that the whole the whole way of living that Indians had had before that, you know, was uh, the legs were cut out from under it. You know, you can't, if you're, a, if you're a hunting gathering people oh, in California. Just the environmental well, destruction. Sure, sure. We just remake it and, you know, we, uh, the elimination of the bison and replacement, uh, the replacement by, uh, by cattle, by ranching. You know, that's, that's an obvious, uh, dramatic example of it. But that could be, that story could be told over and over and over and over throughout the, throughout the far west. You know, we, we simply transform, we, we remake the world environmentally when they come in. It's not just a number of people. It's this, it's, you, you make a new world. And this world is not the world that Indian peoples had, had uh, been living in for, for generations uh, and knew how to deal with and how to support themselves. It's, it's over. You know, what are you going to do? <laughs> there's, there's nothing you can do. Yeah, I see your point. Even outside of the U.S. military involving themselves in certain issues, like what really can be done? Yeah, nothing. Yeah. No, it's completely we've had, overwhelmed, yeah. We've had Dan Flores on the show a couple of times. Um, 
and he made a point about wildlife wildlife in the west specifically mm-hmm. which he spends a lot of his energy on and career on and he and in telling the story about the destruction he'll say i've looked for it globally and and globally i can find nothing no, no. that compares to the destruction of wildlife that's right. And his, that occurred in the American West. Yeah, this wonderful new book of, of Dan's, of course, Wild New World. Uh, he makes that point over and over and over yeah, again. Yeah, and, and I've, I've looked. It's not there. <laughs> not there. Nope. <laughs> nope. It's just, and that's a, that's an aspect of what I what I was just talking about. Yeah. Yeah. What, uh, is it fair to say that your Nez Perce book, The Last, the Last Indian War, is that the name of the book? Yes. Am I remember that right? I read it years ago. Uh, Lay that out for us. Why? Why do you feel that you know? Why that name? What What's the significance of that as the last one? I should start by saying that I am terrible coming up with titles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> absolute, absolute worst. You know. Uh, uh, so yeah, I, I make titles for things that don't even exist. <laughs> <laughs> I bet they're better than mine. <laughs> uh, my editor. Uh, at the Oxford University Press uh, came up with that. I thought, well, yeah, that's a good one. I, th- uh, I call it that, first of all, because I think it was. If you think of a war, you know, as a as a as an ongoing uh, conflict uh, between massed forces, uh, it was. Yeah, but there was no other Indian war in the Far West um, like that, mm-hmm. that that fits that definition. <coughs> it was the fighting. Eighteen seventy-seven. Is that right? Eighteen seventy-seven. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. F- fighting goes on, of course, like in the. Southwest with the Apaches. You know, they're not defeated until 1880s. But is that a war? You know, it's more like a police action. You know, they're like, they're like gangs, right? Yeah, <laughs> they, I got they, you. you know, they fight for a while and they come back into the reservation, rest up, you know, get some food, fatten their horses, and they go back out. And Just it. small groups. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, the Nez Perce War, you know, if, you, uh, if you've read about it, uh, you know, it was this ongoing concerted effort over many months, um, included... Uh, sort of um, uh, battles of both sides, you know, engaging each other like in any like, like in seasoned civil war. civil war generals. That's right. Yeah, getting right. defeated. This <laughs> person <laughs> <laughs> just given uh, just uh, kicked his rear. He was uh, he was w- wounded severely wounded twice in his career. Uh, once was at uh, uh, Cemetery Ridge at Gettysburg. He was up there at that angle. You know, he was with the group. You know, that met the Confederates coming up in Pickett's Charge. Shot in the shoulder, and then he was um, severely wounded at the Battle of the Big Hole uh, against the against the Nez Perce. Can you lay out how that? Can you lay out what that war was? How it started? I mean, you could do the big version of how it started, but then also it kind of had it had a beginning, right? One day, right? right. Well, I think the first thing to say about it is that, as I mentioned a moment ago, um, Lewis and Clark were the first white people, the first. Your your Americans uh, for them ever to meet and in their own minds they uh, they formed a, a, a treaty with the Americans uh, and they promised to keep the peace with them they promised to fight on our side against any uh, any common enemies um, and in their own minds they kept that treaty from that on that point of the eighteen oh six you mean until, they 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 came to an agreement with Lewis and Clark. Bit like there was an exchange of gifts, and and right. they came to be like, okay, 
we're good. We got a deal. Yeah. That's right. Of course, Lewis and Clark have been sitting out there. One of the things they were told to do is to make these sorts of arrangements to them, to open up trade you yeah. know, and to sort of pacify the, pacify the Pacific Northwest, which will allow the flow of trade up there. So they approached it with this and they said, this is what we'd like to do. You know? uh, and the Nisper said, great. That's great. Well, they normally exchange gifts. Uh, the Nisperse to this day are, are, will tell you uh, that there was a child produced uh, out of that uh, treaty arrangement uh, from William Clark, a man who grew up named uh, Daytime Smoke, uh, who ended up fleeing with Chief Joseph uh, and dying in Oklahoma. William Clark's son. Oh, did he? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, I didn't know. So Clark's son was in, Clark's son was present for the Nez Perce War? The Nez Perce say that. Uh, the Nez Perce say that, yeah. That's right. And they they argue that, you know, it's, it's just part of it. You know, that would put him in his, that would put him in the 70s. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Old man. Uh, and as was true of virtually. What was, what was that old man's name? Daytime Spoke. Hmm. <laughs> and he had light colored hair, right? Yeah, uh, it is he sad, said he had light, light yeah. colored hair. Uh, I, I'm a little dubious about that because uh, you, you don't know, Clark, buy it. Well, you know, Clark had red hair, uh-huh. uh, and so the point was that this was, uh, and the Nespers make a big point of that. Well, this guy had hair just like, well, red hair, of course, is a recessive gene. So you only get red hair if both of your parents have uh, that in their genes, right? How in the world did uh, mm. this this woman have? Red hair. Got it. So anyway, it's, it, is, you, it is debatable. But do you, okay, you're questioning, in questioning the hair color, are you questioning the whole premise? No. So you, no, you do think, think there's I, something to I it? I think there's something to it. This is yeah. a, a, a standard arrangement, you know, when you make a deal like that. Uh, you, it's like, it's like royal houses in Europe, you know, a, a prince, uh, a prince from this house marries a princess from that house because you're sealing this deal between them. And this is a standard, standard procedure among Indian peoples. Um, and we know, you know, that in terms of producing children, uh, William Clark really got down to business once he got back home and, right? and yeah. married. Yeah, had a bunch of kids. So. He was fecund. <laughs> he, he, was fec- <laughs> he was fecund, that's right. He uh-huh. was. He was. But, uh, anyway, so I think uh, the, 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 point I, the point to make here is that uh, in the Nez Perseus, they kept this tr- friendship, this treaty, all the way, all the way from 1806 up until 18. 76 and 77. Uh, never waged war against the U.S. Never did. Never did. Uh, there is no record that I could find any uh, of a Nez Perce killing a white, killing a white person. Uh, there are plenty of records of uh, whites murdering Nez Perce. Uh, didn't do it. Didn't do it. Hmm. And yet uh, they were <laughs> the other side of the last Indian War. You know, the last Indian War was against uh, those people who had the longest friendly long, – <laughs> kept their word longer than any other Indian group in the entire Far West. That's what makes this, uh, to me, a very compelling and a very heartbreaking uh, story. The reason they did it, the reason it happened was that they were forced by Oliver Howard uh, to leave their... He's a Civil War guy, right? He's a Civil War guy, right? He was... uh, Was uh, he to do with one arm? He was the one with one arm, that's right. He was a... a, uh, he was a uh, dedicated abolitionist. Uh, he resigned his position teaching up in Bowdoin College uh, to a fight for the war to, to end slavery. Oliver Howard was the head of the Freedmen's Bureau uh, after the war. Uh, 
He founded what is today Howard University, you know, the leading African-American university. Oh, that's, uh, the, that's yeah, the same that's guy? Howard. That's Howard. That's him, yeah. Um, huh. And so after the Civil War, Howard went out, went out to the West. The Nez Perce were divided, of course, into various bands. Uh, some of those bands, uh, two of them, I think, in 1863 had uh, made a treaty with the U.S. agreeing to a, a much smaller reservation, reducing the tribal holdings by 90 percent. But this was only one, one or two bands, one band, really. Uh, the other bands had never agreed to it. They had left the treaty negotiations, and yet the government said everybody, all of these bands, were bound by this treaty. They let it go. In fact, Howard at some point said, leave them alone. They're not bothering anybody. <laughs> they're, mm -hmm. they're living in this country, the Wallawa. You know where the Wallawa is? Yeah, yeah. yeah. They were living in the Wallawa, which is a beautiful, beautiful country, but very isolated. Uh, so there was no pressure to open this up to settlement. So Howard says, you know, let it go. And then in 1876, 77, the government said, no, no, uh, that's it. This treaty holds. You've all got to come in. You've got to give up your home within within six weeks. You've got to uh, get rid of all your cattle. You've got to leave your homeland. You've got to get all your people together, everybody, and you've got to come into this come into this reservation. This now, why they did that is is an interesting question. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of six sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at twc.health slash meat eater. But you got to use the promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater. Okay. At twc.health slash meat eater get incredible deals on premium cuts from butcher box do you like free protein for a whole year well deals this good are hard to come by at the grocery store i at home well i got two freezers but you know what i'm saying i like to have a freezer stocked full of stuff i like feeling prepared man when i come home and it's time to make dinner i like to go in i got all my proteins lined up in there just makes me feel good about stuff and with butcher box you'll always be prepared with meat in the freezer. It means fewer trips to the grocery store. Delivered right to your doorstep with free shipping always. You get a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value. You'll get exclusive deals as a member, too. Sign up at ButcherBox.com slash MeatEater 
and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free and every order for a year. So every box you get has that in it free for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash meat eater. Make sure you use code meat eater to choose your free for a year offer plus $20 off your first order. Hey, heads up all you anglers. Montana Casting Company is a performance fly rod and reel company based right here in Montana, based in Helena. After building custom fly rods for more than 25 years, Montana native and lifelong fly fisherman Scott Joyner decided to apply his knowledge in designing three performance-driven fly rod models. These rods were designed to be performance rods and to withstand the abuse that a fishing guide's equipment endures day in, day out. Their fly rods are named after Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks fishing access sites, which is such a cool idea. And each model of fly rod is a tribute to Montana's rugged beauty and adventurous spirit. Their rods capture the look, feel, and craftsmanship of a custom-built fly rod. Montana Casting Company fly rods have been developed to achieve the perfect balance of performance, durability, and legacy quality craftsmanship. Head to montanacastingco.com and use code MEATEATER20 at checkout for a one-time 20% off discount. You, another passage I read um, in your new book, Continental Reckoning, you talk about this, you explore this theme you're getting to right now, Mm -hmm. which is an inability or a lack of willingness on the part of U.S. negotiators to understand the structures of tribal peoples and trying to impose on them this order of that you have a that you have this sort of like this president-like figure that I will talk to and they'll agree. And then that, that sort of covers me on all of these peoples that we imagine being under this leadership structure to the point where I know that in the Ohio river country, um, the U S government once bought a chunk of ground from a tribe that didn't occupy the chunk of ground. <laughs> well, they're like, oh, yeah, I'll sell you Bob's spot. No problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's right. Kentucky. And, then, and then, yeah, and then try to hold them to it. And they're like, well, hold it. But we didn't, the, the people that were there were like, well, we didn't agree to that. Right. Well, no, but we bought it from these other people. They said they knew you. That's exactly right. But again and again. Yeah, we are. Like yeah. That, that failure, or, you know, I'd say like a lack of, it's probably not that they didn't understand it. It's probably they just didn't care. I think it was a bit of both. Uh, you got to think uh, from the from Washington's point of view. Are we really? Now, these are tr- treaties. You know, a treaty with an Indian tribe is like a treaty with France, yeah, or a treaty with Germany or whatever. And it has to go through the same procedure. You have to get you have to negotiate. This got to be examined. But the Senate has to approve it, of course. Uh, are we really going to go through that whole procedure with every band mm-hmm. in the far west? <laughs> you know, that won't work. Yeah. And so I think in a very practical way, a very cynical way, they said, okay, we'll just, we'll just say 
that you have a governmental and a, a structure of, of, of collective authority like ours. Yeah. Right? We got a president? We got a president. We'll call him the uh, head chief. Yeah. And if you don't, if you don't find one, we'll find one. We'll, and we'll appoint one. Yeah. We'll appoint one. And that happened over, over and over and over again. And that's, that is what, that's what's going on with the, with the Nez Perce. Joseph uh, used an argument exactly like you were just saying. He uses horses. He says, it's like coming in and you're saying, um, uh, uh, saying to me, uh, we just bought your horse. No, you didn't. <laughs> you didn't give me. Wait, well, yeah, we paid that guy over there. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not his horse. Well, yeah, it's the way it goes. Right? Yeah. yeah. So at any point in in 1877, then they forced them to to move into this small reservation to give up their homes, uh, be crowded into this this small space, um, and they were going to do it. They did it, you know? and they came across the salmon. You know, this rough. This is Late spring, salmon was up and running, you know, but they got all the people across. They got what cattle they could across there, and they were camped near the reservation, on the edge of the reservation, literally the day before they were required to come onto the reservation. At that point, uh, it finally snapped, and a few young men, warriors, uh, who had grudges against uh, a merchant and a couple of other uh, whites who had settled there uh, in the in the valley, um, took off, killed them, uh, and that then, with that, just sort of like a you know the, the match to tender. But it was it. I don't want to say what's interesting about it, but it's it's noteworthy that it was people that knew each other. Yep. Like you're saying, I went to those sites, you know, where, but uh, it was. Uh, they set out to get, it wasn't sort of like riding to this strange land and like invading strangers. It was they, they settled grudges with people they had interacted with. Of course. Yeah. And in one case had some physical disputes with, I think. But the fact that that would trigger yeah. not a police action, right? Not like right. arrest right. warrants. Right. Well, I guess they tried to do something like that, didn't they? They tried to like arrest the people. and. Well, you know, like I say, when these uh, young guys came back and it was clear what they had done, they were boasting about it, you know. Uh, at that point, then a lot more men took off. And it was nasty. It was a nasty bit of business. They killed a lot of folks. They raped a lot of women. It was a ugly, ugly thing. Uh, and at that point, uh, the leadership, the, the, you know, the council, these leaders who, who had argued for peace said, look, we're not going to win. Uh, we got to go in. Um, at that point, they said, well, that's it. It will have to be war. The name of one of my chapters you know, was a quote from one of these councils. It will have to be war. This is it. You know? And then they went all after it. And as you said, they just kicked their ear and said, <laughs> in several places. They yeah, it was this idea. It, it seems so. So when you're looking at the country, and correct me if I mess any of this up. When you're looking at the country, like you imagine settlement um, starting in the east. Mm-hmm. And sort of going like a wall to the West Coast, the Pacific. But it actually it did that to a sense, but it also skipped this chunk. You know, it skipped the Great Plains to some measure. So when the Nez Perce get in this fight with the U.S. Army, they head east. They're going east to escape the Army because they feel <laughs> if they get out on the Great Plains... 
They're home free. No one's going to care about them anymore because they used to go out there. They they had for quite some time gone out there to to hunt buffalo. And so they were sort of going what you'd imagine as going east. You'd imagine them sort of going into the eye of the storm of the U.S. Mm -hmm. But in their mind, they would move east to get away from the U.S. That's right. And they they were longtime allies with the Crows, Absorka people. Uh, and they what they thought was, if we can get to the crows, if we can get out of here, uh, they'll leave us alone. We'll get over to the crows, our friends, and the crows will take us in, and we'll let things settle down, and then we'll go back home. Mm-hmm. One of the fascinating aspects of this story is how the Nez Perce, on the one hand, were so beautifully adapted to the white presence there. Uh, this is in contradiction to what I said a moment ago. Their their environment was just fine for them, and they adapted to it beautifully. They were they were very prosperous, successful uh, ranchers. Uh, they were, you know, when they took off on this cattle this, ranchers, cattle ranchers yeah. uh, on this long retreat, um, they cached uh, a lot of their val- their their valuables, including uh, silver tea sets. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> were, incredible to think about. They it, were, right? Yeah, they were they were wealthier than the whites in the area. You know, they had lots of resources, they had lots of money, and they had become very savvy in dealing with the whites in terms of economically, economically. So that's you've got that on the one hand, and yet on the other hand, in this larger perspective, they had this astonishingly naive view larger white society you know, of, what, of what they were really up against. <laughs> mm. There's this... Uh, you mean there's the this, naive view that you would somehow get out of this alive? Yeah, or, or, or even beyond that. You know, uh, what are we dealing with here? One of the, one of the counts, you know, there, there are transcripts, of course, of all of these negotiations with Howard and these others. And one of the uh, Nesper's band leaders, um, um at one point, and, and you first read it, you think he's 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 being facetious. He's being he's being uh, you know he's being sarcastic, but I don't think so. He said, "What is this? Who is who is this Washington? You keep talking about. You keep saying Washington says that you have this treaty. You've got to do. Washington says you've got to do this. Who's that? Is it a person? <laughs> is it a house? He said. Is it a house? <laughs> so, they, you know, on the one hand, they're they're so." beautifully adapted to their immediate yeah. environment. And the larger, uh, you know, they've never, the first time that they become aware of the telegraph that it existed was during the retreat over Lolo Pass. Uh, was it really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. They had, the first time they ever saw or got onto a train was after the surrender when they were taken, uh, they were taken uh, over to the uh, uh, Fort Leavenworth. That was their first contact with the train. Yeah. yeah. Or experience Before the they, train. They, they didn't know what they were. You know? mm. And so, when they split, they had what about twelve hundred people? About that, and then yeah. five, six thousand horses. A bunch of horses, yeah. And they run this rolling gunfight and keep whipping, <laughs> repeatedly whipping Civil War generals <laughs> yeah. in like battles. And then one of the craziest things about sort of the one of the craziest collisions of that you have this this semi nomadic tribe of hunter gatherers moving across the landscape. And the lateness is they get to Yellowstone National Park, which is a park. That's right. Mm-hmm. Can't be for five, five And get years into a point, shootout yeah. at Mammoth Hot Springs with tourists. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's, like, it's, it's, it's just a, like it blows it's, your it, mind. Yeah, it's, it's just such a bizarre story. You know, it's like, uh, it reminds me, you know what it reminds me of? 
Uh, did you ever see the movie Blazing Saddles? Oh yeah. You kidding me? The very, (laughs) (laughs) you know, the very end of it, uh, when there's a big fight, uh, in the, in the town and somebody bumps up against this, you know, what turns out to be, uh, uh, you know, scenery. Yeah. And uh, all the town falls over. Well, well, no, no. And and, and they break through and it's another movie going on next door. (laughs) Dom DeLuise, you know, and he's, he's been, I forgot forgot about that detail. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to talk about that fight rolling over into I-90. Yeah. Their fight rolls into a new movie set. (laughs) And that's what this feels like. You know, it's like, it's like these two stories that come together in this strange way. One of the things there, you know, William Sherman, who was head of the army in the West at that time, uh, and of course, you know, the man who arguably was most influential in ending the Civil War, he's, he ends up in charge of Indian policy out in the West. Uh, he's, a gen- he's the general of the armies. He is the highest ranking military officer in the United States at that time. He's on a vacation in Yellowstone Park. So William Sherman was, was he? He was he oh, was at the time at the time that Le, the Nez Perce came in, you know. So and somebody you know uh, said, "Oh my God, you've <laughs> got these Indians coming in here who've just been you know just been killing our soldiers over there, and all of a sudden they're going in here." So they rush to tell him, and he gets out just a day or so before they come right through there. So what if that hadn't happened? No. You know, Billy Sherman, you know, William Sherman <laughs> sitting around, you know, sipping whiskey and eating fried trout, you know, yeah. all of a sudden Chief Joseph shows up, you know. Soaking his feet in some hot spring, <laughs> right. huh? boiling a chicken in the hot chicken. spring. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, a, you know, it's just a, it's such a wonderful story on so many levels. The macro level, you know, what oh, it tells yeah. you about what's going on in the United States at that time. And then the, 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 you know, the, the mini level, you know, the micro level where you get these astonishing little stories and, and quirks, you know, that things come together like that. Have I, you read, have you read, oh, sorry, did you just go to say? Who's I was just going to oh. say, I think one of the more striking things about it is just how sprawling geographically it is. Like, I can't think of very many sort of episodic stories that start where they do and, and cross over and then they're, you know, through the breaks and headed up to Canada. It's like, there aren't very many, I mean, there's Lewis and Clark, sure, but that's like years and years, you know, but like in terms of miles covered in telling this story, it's it's just, it's, yeah. I I try to figure out a way to illustrate that and and, uh, think of it this way. Uh, At the end of the Civil War, uh, there's this community in Virginia, Central Virginia, and they decide, mm, I don't want to live on the Union. You know, let's get out of here. So the whole town gets together, and they head west, leaving the middle of Virginia, right? Uh, like the Nez Perce. This, this, this was the, these were just warriors, of course. These are uh, the entire men, women, children, old old folks. You know, uh, pick up and move, pick up and go. Uh, and the army says, "No, you gotta, you gotta stay here." So the army's chasing them. This, this small hmm. southern town, right? And they're leaving. They're heading west from uh, from central Virginia. If those, if if that town had a, had had a gone uh, as far as this these Nez Perce did before they were caught up near the Canadian border, they would have gone from uh, the middle of Virginia to Denver. Are you serious? Yeah, they did. They did thirteen hundred miles or something, didn't they? 
thirteen to fifteen hundred, depending on how you measure it. Yeah. Think just about engagement Think about after engagement yeah. after engagement. Yeah, yeah. That parallel so, so, is almost too good to be true. It, it, well, it is true. Well, Un, I, unlike many things that I've written, it is in fact true. I think. <laughs> I think one of the things that I I remember from your from this book is you make the point that ex Confederates and Native people are the only Americans that have had citizenship forced on them at gunpoint. <laughs> oh, right. Uh. And like, there's so many, I mean, the, the one of the main points yeah. in the book is just mm -hmm. to understand the Indian Wars as part of this bigger right. project of nation making. And, you know, you talk about greater reconstruction as, yeah. as 1845 to 1880 or so. 80 or mm -hmm. so. Mm -hmm. um, like, could you talk a little bit about that? Like the, the, the parallels that you see in, in the Indian wars and the civil war, because there are a lot of interrelated sure. questions. Sure. And Yeah. That was the, uh, the larger theme of the last Indian wars. It's a great story about it. It's an amazing story itself. The whole Nez Perce story is, is, is fascinating. Uh, what I tried to argue in this book, because uh, been a lot of books written on the, on the war, Mm -hmm. the what I try to uh, one less than there would have been. <laughs> <laughs> it is a it is a long walk. For, right? <laughs> I got tired and I just drove it. You know, <laughs> uh, but the larger point was that this is really um, a very revealing part of what I call the greater reconstruction. What I what I argue here is that. Something really important happens in the middle of the 19th century. We all agree on that. In the middle of the 19th century, the um, national narrative shifts fundamentally onto a new track that will carry us into what we know as modern America. Right? If you go up before 1850 and look at America and look at then America in 1900, it's like you're, it's like a different world. Mm -hmm. you know, we've become a fundamentally different nation, society, people, culture, whatever. Uh, why does that happen? What what explains this dramatic shift? Well, the usual suspect, of course, and it's absolutely true, of course, is the Civil War itself. Civil War is typically seen as this event, you know, that moves the United States in this dramatically in this new direction. That's obviously, of course, true. What I argue here is that uh, expansion, the acquisition of 1.2 million square miles in three years, 1845 to 1848. Oh, you opened your book by saying this spasm of expansion would be like if we right now, um, within a couple of years, the U.S. annexed Mexico, Central America, Portions of Brazil, <laughs> Colombia, about half of Colombia. Yeah, right. you're like, All okay, so let's talk about how much, how quickly the U.S. grew. Is it be that that, that if, if between now and three years from now, right. we bought one, basically everything south of us halfway down into South America. <laughs> halfway, halfway, through and then we're going to now Columbia. we're going to incorporate that. Right. <laughs> good luck with that. Right. Yeah. It's, uh, and I think it's a pretty good, I think it's a revealing parallel because, you know, just as if you, if you drive south from El Paso to the middle of Colombia, you're going to see a lot of people, you're going to see different cultures, different languages, different traditions, different economies and so forth. And somehow we're going to bring all of that together into this, this one thing, mm -hmm. the United States. Furthermore, uh, 
uh, within 200 hours of the signing of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which gave us you know, the Mexico session, 200 hours before that, gold was discovered in uh, hmm. Northern California, which turned out to be the, by far, the greatest uh, gold strike, most productive gold strike in human history up until that time. Is that coincidence? I think it is. Uh, it, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a kind of fact that, that, that is born to create Conspiracy theories. Yeah. Right? Oh, I, really? Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I don't see any evidence whatsoever that there was anything, anything like that. It was just pure, pure coincidence. In fact, the, the first chapter of the book I call The Great Coincidence. Now, this is the greatest, <laughs> most influential coincidence in American history by far, you know, hands down. Uh, and re- then, restate that just so people get this. I call the first chapter of the book The Great Coincidence because I, would, I think it's in, incontestable. That this coincidence of nine day within nine days, the United States acquiring California, acquiring the Pacific. Uh, and this is part of the end of this three year expansion, of course. Uh, within nine days, we begin to this area begins to be revealed as the richest place on earth. It starts with the gold rush, but then from then on, of course, we discovered time after time after time after time. You know, it's it's like you know. Uh, the gods have said, uh, you need something? It's there. Yeah. It's there. You know I mean? The West is the great treasure house <laughs> mm-hmm. of the Western Hemisphere. Right? So think of it then. Think of the consequences that would follow expansion up until, let's say, 1880. Uh, and you can't tell me that those were not as important, as not as consequential as the changes that came because of the Civil War. So what I'm arguing is that we need to think of this great this shift to the American narrative as a result of two things: the Civil War, absolutely, expansion, and the and what follows from expansion uh, is number two. And those two things are are their own stories, but they're also interacting. They're also interacting, uh, and that's the point I think that I try to make in uh, in the last Indian War. And what you can see in this story is this effort by the government, Washington, whether it's a person or a house yeah, or whatever. Yeah. Uh, Whoever that guy is. Yeah. Guys, right? <laughs> uh, Washington trying to bring into, into coherence, bring into a singularity, this extraordinary continental nation there. They do it by force if they have to. They do it by expanding the role of the, of the federal government. Uh, uh, and, they, uh, and they do it as well by imposing a kind of uh, order on it, not just physical order, but an order of who is an American, right? What do we mean by Americans? Well, in the East, it's emancipation. We free one million, four million persons from bondage, and we say, you're going to be citizens now. Mm-hmm. Out West, it's Indians, right? It's Hispanics. It's it's others out there. We're we're telling them who they are. Yeah. <laughs> right? Now in the East, uh, the freed people wanted citizenship. Out West, not so much. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the government says, okay, now we're going to uh, same thing they did with uh, the Reconstruction of the South. We're going to give you land. That is, we're going to make you farmers. Right. We're going to 
We're going to make you freeholders, independent family freeholders. Uh, we're going to uh, t- teach your children. We're going we're to bring your children to our schools, and we're going to teach them the basics, uh, starting with the English language. Everybody's going to speak English. Teach, teach them the basics, including cultural basics, what an American is, right? And this is an important part of it, uh, Christianity. We're, we're going to make you Christians. America will be this Christian nation, right? <laughs> Oliver Howard, you know, this uh, uh, devoted evangelical uh, Christian. He was doing that in the south of the Freedmen's Bureau, and when he went out west, he did it with Indians. Well, you say that to the, you know, to former slaves, and they say, great. <laughs> we want to be citizens. <laughs> we want land. We've been working your land for a long time. Yeah. You know? Give us mm-hmm. a farm. Give us 40 acres and a mule, right? We want you to educate our children. We want to send our children to Hampton, you know, and to, uh, to others, right? Uh, and we are we are Christians, because you know, there's, you know, Christianity was a fundamental part of slave culture, right? So they said, terrific. You go out to the Nez Perce. Uh, we want to make you farmers. I don't think so. Mm-hmm, <laughs> kind yeah. of like, or you go to uh, you know Lakotas and Comanches. We uh, got a farm in West Texas. <laughs> no, um, we want to. Um, Educate your children. We're already educating our children, right? We want you to be Christians. No, I don't think so. You know, I've, we've got our own religion, right? Mm-hmm. And the government says, you don't understand. Uh, this is not an offer. This is an order. Mm-hmm. You will become farmers. And we will take your children and teach them. Yeah, and you will become Christians. That's then the basis of what happens out west when the war, when when the military does step in, it's it's because of the consequences of that, and that's what's going on with the uh, with the Nez Perce. Yeah. It's that final moment when Oliver Howard steps up and says, uh, "Okay, <laughs> we've been overlooking all of this for a long time. You know, no longer we got to do it," uh, and that's what that's the trigger that sets it off. Um, with the Nez Perce, was there, like, we talked about Washington and General Sherman. Was there, like, finally a sense of urgency to, like, this, this is it, we're done with this? Like, we need to establish control. Like, after decades of fighting these wars, it seems like it was, like, we'll establish some stability here and then here and then, like, was that, do you call it the last war because they finally decided, like, this is it, we're done? Washington, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And that's, uh, to me, that is a really interesting question. Why? These people were no trouble to them. They were living in an area that, that very few whites wanted. Why? Why would you force it then? Why? The reason, I think an important reason was uh, the Little Bighorn. I you think. know, Brody lost some relatives at Little Bighorn? Is that right? There's, uh, yeah, there's a couple. Golly. Distant, distant. Yep. Yep. Brody's brother. <laughs> My older He's brother. older than he looks. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that um, that, of course, was this, this uh, terrific humiliation. Right. For the government, you know. Uh, the boy general, you know, this uh, the darling of the... Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, not only gets killed, but um, it's, it's this... Defeat, this this moment that 
the, I think that was the that was the key to the government saying, "Okay, that's it. Everybody everywhere has got to get under our knee. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got to you, you got to uh, uh, play by the rules now. These are the new rules." That's the only only way I can I can think of because you look at the at the record, you know, the government suddenly just pivots. Oh, before yeah. that, before this, they were saying, "Oh well, you know, what's the problem? It'll it'll happen eventually, and we'll just sort of kick the can down the road." And, and uh, um, but all of a sudden, they all of a sudden they send word to Howard, uh, "Nope, you got to do it." You know, that was I was talking about all the mental energy I've spent on my life. Um, the players who convened that fateful, you know, June 25th. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that a lot of historians have are argue now, and it's, it's inescapable. Is like, it's almost the definition of a pirate victory to the point where after the great victory at little bighorn, rather than being emboldened and taking the fight, to the next army they disband like some people say the probably the greatest gathering of plains tribes it was to ever occur yep the numerically the greatest gathering to ever occur the next day they disbanded hmm. and they're like man it's hell to pay now <laughs> <laughs> and I think they disbanded I and tried to melt into the landscape rather right. than being like let's take washington you know it was just, uh-oh, no. this is not going right. to go over well. This, this is not good. Right? This yeah. is not going to go no, over well. No, I, uh, I agree with that uh, a- absolutely. And I think that, again, comes back to the larger point that I was making, uh, that the odds against them were so overwhelming. Mm-hmm. If you fight, you're going to lose. It's, it's going to happen. We caught them at this point just by luck by this guy's a regrettable decision by yeah, Cusper, yeah. right? Yeah. And like, like you say, this this huge gathering, maybe the um, Fort Laramie conference, the um, uh, conference in eighteen fifty, might have been might have been larger than that. But this oh, is, is that right? but, yeah. but it, that was of course peaceful. As far as I, I, in the wartime, there's nothing to nothing to match this. Uh, okay, that's today, right? What now? What now? You know they're going to come after you. I want I want to hit you with a couple of details that came out of these. This is one of, two, one of my favorite things of the perspective of the Native American fighters at Little Bighorn. A man named I can't remember if it was Gall. One of them said in trying to explain the actions of the army, he said, "We just thought they were all drunk." <laughs> <laughs> it might have been. And then two two men. Were asked how long it took, how long that battle took that that day, and one of them said, "Gall, uh, Unk Papa Sue had said it lasted as long as it takes a hungry man to eat his dinner." Wow. Another said, "I'm paraphrasing." He said, "You know when you're laying in your teepee and you're looking out the chimney hole, and the sun hits one of the poles at the top." It took about as long as it takes the sun to move past that pole. <laughs> wow. wow. That was yeah. how long that fight was. Yeah. And both, it had, uh, 
and then later people both said, oh, yeah, they're both saying it was about 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think probably, it, probably longer than that, but not, but not just, much They're longer, talking about the, much, the hill. The hill, okay. Yeah, oh, the, sure. The hill where sure, Custer, sure, like the sure. hill where his little gang wound sure. up was that, 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 that portion. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of six sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, is not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at twc.health slash meat eater, but you got to use the promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater, okay, at twc.health slash meat eater. Hey, heads up all you anglers. Montana Casting Company is a performance fly rod and reel company based right here in Montana, based in Helena. After building custom fly rods for more than 25 years, Montana native and lifelong fly fisherman Scott Joyner decided to apply his knowledge in designing three performance-driven fly rod models. These rods were designed to be performance rods and to withstand the abuse that a fishing guide's equipment endures day in, day out. Their fly rods are named after Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks fishing access sites, which is such a cool idea. And each model of fly rod is a tribute to Montana's rugged beauty and adventurous spirit. Their rods capture the look, feel, and craftsmanship of a custom-built fly rod. Montana Casting Company fly rods have been developed to achieve the perfect balance of performance, durability, and legacy quality craftsmanship. Head to montanacastingco.com and use code MEATEATER20 at checkout for a one-time 20% off discount. This festival and concert season will be all about the boots, and Tacovas is your stop before attending your next concert. Tacovas has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. And Tacovas has first wear comfort, meaning you put them on, they feel great. Little or no break-in, period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Plus, their direct-to-consumer pricing keeps value on your feet and money in your pocket. Just ask my buddy Chili, who's been slipping around in his Tacova boots, talking about how great he feels in them. He loves them. Yeah, Steve, they're very comfortable. They're very fashionable. 
and I enjoy wearing mine around the office and anywhere I go around Bozeman. Stop by your local Tacovas store, have a complimentary drink, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and a friendly staff are at your service. Many stores have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it to a store, just visit Tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. And find your new favorite pair of boots today. Yellow Wolf, um, the Nez Perce, he, he later met that guy. I can't remember who the hell he was. Yellow Wolf met some guy that then sat. Like Yellow Wolf was, was one of the participants in the right. Nez Perce right. War. Right. He actually escaped. He's one of the very few that escaped into Canada. When they caught Chief Joseph near the border, he gave his famous, from where the sun right. now stands, right. I'll fight no more forever. Right. This dude named Yellow Wolf had actually slipped out of there made it to Canada, later came back down into the U.S. And, yeah, there were a few hundred who, who made it. And he later met some guy that not only took down his life history, but they went and visited a bunch of places. And Yellow Wolf takes this guy. He might have been German. I can't remember. Anyways, he takes this guy to the Little Bighorn battle site. Not the Little Bighorn. The Bighorn. Big Hole. Big Hole. Mm-hmm. The site of the Big Hole battle. And tells him, and even shows him where it happened that a guy, a U.S. soldier, got shot through the forehead and was dead standing on his feet. And they challenged him on it. And he's like, no. He was, at the end of the battle, he was standing dead. Locked knees, standing dead. And I can never tell if that's true. <laughs> <laughs> it's you know, it's funny. Uh, when I was writing the book, I have several stories like that in there, uh, in that book. Um, and I wrestled with that. In the end, I just told it straight on. Like what, Yellow Wolf? Yellow Wolf and others. There were, there were uh, others like that um, at the big hole. Uh, another one, uh, earlier on, while they were maneuvering within their home country there in Idaho, uh, they... Uh, Came upon a, a small patrol, army patrol, uh, killed them all. But the they said there was one guy in there who they kept shooting, kept shooting, 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 but he wouldn't die, including the head. Instead, what he did was uh, sit sit on the ground and cluck like a chicken. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know. Is that true? <laughs> I don't know who am I to say. I wasn't there, right? But, yeah. but it's, certainly, Wolf, it's certainly part of their tradition. Yellow Wolf was such an interesting dude. He had, he explains that he had kind of a personal obligation. If he encountered a grizzly, he had a personal obligation to mix it up with that bear <laughs> and kill that bear. <laughs> he, was, he was a fascinating guy. Yeah, I, and, I'm and again, again and again, he'd be like, oh, brother, here we go. <laughs> like, if he found one, he had <laughs> he had to go after it. <laughs> oh, not again. <laughs> yeah, he's a fascinating guy. I, I begin and end the book with Yellow Wolf. Mm. Uh, I end with his death. Yeah. Uh, uh, when he tells his family, I'm dying tomorrow morning when the sun uh, rises on the horizon. Uh and he did. And the last thing he said, he said, my friends have come for me. Oh, really? Do you see them? Right. Oh, he did? I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah. But the, the fellow you're talking about is I mean, uh, Lucullus Bequarter. Oh, Bequarter. Yeah. Yeah, not a yeah, German. Yeah. Scotland. And he, yeah. uh, he, was a, he was a rancher out there. And um, one day this Indian came up and his horse had uh, been injured or 
bumping into a fence, I guess a barbed wire fence, that cut it badly. And so he asked McWhorter, will you take care of my horse? Which, you know, in, in Indian terms, of course he will. You know, this is what you do. If somebody, if it's not your enemy, uh, says you yeah, got an injured horse, will you watch after him? And they said, uh, he said, sure. And he came back the next year uh, to claim his horse, uh, and it was just fine. And they struck up a friendship. And those two men uh, spent the rest of their lives uh, re reconstructing that story. Oh, uh, okay. Yellow Wolf mm. telling this to, to McWhorter. McWhorter's papers are at Washington State Archives, and I spent a long time <laughs> in that archive. Oh, did you? Going through yeah. these papers, and it's uh, they're uh, they're just a uh, a treasure because it's the only case I know of where you have such a concentrated body of native testimony because. Yellow Wolf of taking these others. Yeah. Like, tell him your story. Tell him your story. So you got all of these voices. And I think if I remember right, it's um people feel like that that there was a enough of a friendship in the McWarder, who I couldn't remember his name. McWarder was reliable. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. It yeah. became his lifelong passion. That he wasn't distorting I don't think these so. narratives. I don't was, think I was so. trying to I mean, capture he, he, these. Well, stories. he obviously uh, obviously was very sympathetic. Uh, so I suppose you take that, but most of what he has in there is not his words at all. It's the words of the Nez Perce, mm-hmm. of his, uh, uh, of the people he's interviewing. Yeah. In fact, one of the things I ran across, uh, stuff is really, the collection is really kind of a mess. You know, they, uh, they, they worked a long time trying to organize it. He just sort of threw stuff in boxes. But I did run across um, this small slip of paper uh, that had a thought about something about the war. You know, something just sort of came to him. And he, he wrote this thought on this little sip of paper. And it was the last thing he ever did in his life. He was in the hospital uh, dying, and this came to him, and he wrote this on this slip of paper and then died. What was? What did he write? I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> but that was just his <laughs> dying thought. <laughs> Sorry, but, uh, but, uh, but it's uh, but uh, and it, as I remember, it wasn't truly consequent. It was just yeah. something that yeah. popped into his head. It wasn't hmm. any great breakthrough or anything. But you uh, you spent a lot of your career and a lot of your writing about mining, mm-hmm. mining towns, influence of mining, and I'm really paraphrasing, but in your book. I don't know, it kind of more or less says, you know, in terms of native peoples, if when they find gold, it's over. It's over. That's right. <laughs> right. That's right. It's or like silver. That. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Lay that out a little bit. Like just like where like that that thirst for gold. Yeah. Yeah. Why why is that, you know, you hear about gold in the Black Hills, California gold rush, the Alaska gold rush, just really transformative. They are. Really transformative events. Yeah. Uh well a couple of uh, you know, couple of reasons that I think are, are self-evident when you think about it. Um, first of all, there, there is no greater motivation motivator in American history than a, than a gold discovery. Nothing like that can, can put people into action uh, so quickly and on such a scale. So the, for the one thing, uh, what you get is thousands of people, you know, racing to this this particular place uh, uh, over a very, very short span of time. 
Uh, now, what I mentioned before, you know, talk about uh, what really defeated the Indians was the transform, environmental transformation of their homelands. Mm-hmm. Nothing did that more dramatically, faster, on a greater scale than a gold or a silver strike. And thousands of people come into an area um, that is at a fairly small, these are hunter-gatherer people, so a relatively small uh, population up until that time, uh, that are always on the move. You know, they're semi-nomadic, and they're on the move because they're, they're, they've choreographed their, their life to be at the right place at the right time. You know, we got to gather, got to fish the salmon at this particular month. You know, we got to gather the camas bulbs at this particular this particular point. We got this is when the elk migrate. We got to be there. And all of a sudden, that world is transformed. Right? The wild uh, the, the the game is hunted out. Right? Uh, the streams are polluted. Uh, the trees are cut. You know, the uh, migration patterns are are totally disrupted. Um, it's devastates, convulsive. Right? Yeah, I, I want to interrupt yeah. you make a, sure. another, to clarify another point you had said about even these huge areas, the specificity of some things that you would need, mm-hmm. meaning here you, you're, you're a nomadic people with horses mm-hmm. and you live in the northern climates. What do you need in the winter? Right? Access to timber, access to water, grazing lands, which yep. is going to be like big riparian bottoms. And you said, if there's a spot like that, everybody knows about it. That's right. It's that's a right. real vulnerability. That's right. You know, that's right. And, and that's the places that other people want. That's right. And if, if you look at the history of Indian wars, it's, it's, when, the, when those conflicts did occur, when those, when those campaigns did happen and those battles did happen, look at how many of them uh, take place in the winter. Because like I know where they'll be, <laughs> and of course, turn that around. Um, when is when is the worst possible time to go up against the Indians? June twenty fifth, eighteen seventy six. They attack. Yeah, that's a good point. They, they attack. Good point. The, they attack the Indians. All at, these winter at, massacres at the, yeah, that oh. they would con- the army would conduct, but then in the summertime, yeah. it's just different game. So summertime, yeah. they choose. You know, let's let's attack them uh, within two days of the of the summer solstice. <laughs> Brilliant. <You know>? Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't work. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's right. Uh, it's, it's the it's the environmental am, an, angle of that. You know that he has to you have to take into um, account. But the other thing about mining rushes is. Uh, most by far, of course, uh, strikes occur in, in mountains and in very isolated areas. It's a long way from any white settlement. What that does, you know, once you that strike occurs, and if it if it proves to be worth it, what you do is immediately get this great movement into those places, uh, um, which in turn is, is key to opening up the interior west uh, to transportation, to access of others. So it, it creates these – It's in other words, it's not a you, – you mentioned before, uh, the frontier is like a moving wall, right? That's the agricultural frontier. Oh, yeah. It's not the way, not the, way the mining frontier works. No, I got it's it. It's a leapfrog. It's, it's a leap – the image I have is um, – Artillery shells. Yeah. Probably better than a leapfrog. Yeah, it's good. And then the, I think yeah. it's a good image because yeah. the sort of the concussive, it's, uh, the concussive 
rings move outward from that. You know, that's what kills them. That's what kills them. And what what it starts with with this is this you know ancient fascination with gold. Mm-hmm. It goes back a long way. You know, <laughs> the Egyptians, you know, the Egyptians called it the breath of God, gold. You know? yeah. There's something about gold that 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 uh, moves people into action, in in a movement, into uh, th- th- nothing else. Nothing else can. What? And, what it, and it turns out that we have more of it than anybody else. What <laughs> was the native <laughs> attitude towards gold? You know, the, what you hear, of course, is they didn't care much about it. Right. Uh, that's not true. Uh, in fact, there's a one, there's a very good a book that's being worked on at the time by Ben Madley uh, in California. He wrote a book on an American genocide. You know that book? It's on, yep. on, I haven't on, read on, it, but yeah, yeah on, uh, about California. And Ben is writing now on Indians and the gold rush. Uh, once the strikes occur, they jump into it with both with both feet. Uh, before that. I don't know. You know, I think they just sort of, sort of as a curiosity. They mm-hmm. knew it was there, but they didn't. Uh, you know, and, and Ian Frazier's Great Plains, mm-hmm. he tells a story. I don't, maybe it's an apocryphal story. I don't know. He tells a story about, I think it was the Blackfeet finding bags of gold on a keel boat or some boat that they catch. They capture it and they like the bags. <laughs> And leave the gold <laughs> dust laying on the gravel bar. Yeah, I've read have the, you heard that story? Uh, well, I've read the book, but I don't remember that story. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to know if that's true, man. He's pretty careful generally, yeah, you know. Yeah. But that—that's what he said. Yeah. But I got—I got a practical gold rush question. I mean, I kind of know the answer, but it'd just be interesting to see if you could explore it for a minute. Is if you tell me right now um, that oh, so and so just found a ton of gold in Nebraska, okay? I would think, oh, well, that's a guy's land. Good for him. I wouldn't think, I'm going to run over and get a bunch of it. <laughs> what are the factors that it would be that, that you could hear about this mm-hmm. in wherever the hell you're at? Philadelphia or wherever. Okay. And, and have some plausible idea, <laughs> like some rational idea that you would go there and then <laughs> that you would get to pick some of it up. Do you know what I mean? Like how like how is this in terms of just the the land ownership and the claiming it and that the government, you know, whether or not they occupy it, the US has a sort of claim on it. How is it that you're gonna go and get some for yourself? Yeah, were they advertising? <laughs> so, yeah, like how do you get like where does that idea enter your head? I would never think if someone said, Oh, so and so found a bunch of whatever, I would never be like, I'm gonna go and take some. <laughs> well, I think it ties in, first of all, with the, again, with expansion. The idea that it's not Nebraska. It's not a farm. You know, it's this place that we just got. Mm-hmm. I mean, half an hour ago, right? Yeah. It's brand new, right? And it could not be farther away from me than uh, and still be, still be in, the United States, so, in the United States. So I can imagine anything. It's, it, whatever I want to happen, that's going to happen. Yeah, I mean they were right, weird. but it's just like such a strange understanding yeah. of of how you'd even get a sense of the spatial characteristics right. of where the stuff is. Right, right. But to like bet your life on it. Yep. A lot of them did, and some of them lost the bet. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, Was there any government guidance? Like, if you're going, this is how you want to do it, or there, was it just word of mouth? And well, you, you got to remember now. Uh, the gold rush, you know, 1848, 49, uh, 
there have been overland migration before that, uh, out to Oregon and to California, uh, out to the, uh, the Oregon country, out to mm-hmm. the you know, uh, Central Valley, uh, Sutter. And other. So they knew the way, uh, and the way was uh, w- was well marked. By this time, they were starting to have uh, stores along the, along the overland route. Um, so how to get there was not was not really much of a mystery. The mystery was once you get there, how do you deal with that? Mm-hmm. Right? How do you how do you mine? Yeah, has it ever, ever occurred to you? At least I think it's part of the question that, oh, you're, yeah. that you're asking. Yeah, you're a you know you're a uh, uh, you're a clerk in <laughs> in Cleveland, Ohio, right? And you're going to go to California. You're going to mine gold, really? Yeah, you're going to be a, you're going to be a placer miner or yeah. whatever. Or yeah, a pan, yeah. Like a, yeah, it's like some, you're a tenderfoot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah it's, it reminds me of a. Uh, Jethro Bodine in the uh, Beverly Hillbillies. You know? I'm going to be an, an atomic brain surgeon. He said, "You know, <laughs> what? Do you, what? Do you, what? You know, uh, well, who, the people who taught him, of course, uh, were the Mexicans and the in the South Americans. There have been gold, you know, gold mining in Peru and in Chile and in Mexico. Yeah. And so, one of the things that I, I write about in the book, uh, I think that most people don't think about, are the forty eighters." <laughs> you know, the, the discovery was made in, in, uh, in late January 1848. That discovery was not confirmed in the East until the following December. Got it. 48. So consequently, the great rush was in 49. But by that time, of course, uh, there were people mining gold out there from Mexico, from Chile, uh, from Peru. Oh, is that right? Uh, really? yeah. Sure. Uh, from Australia. There were Australians there. There were Tasmanians. Before the 49ers got there. Yeah, 48ers. And so these guys, 49ers come out there and they say, well, are these people mining our gold, right? (laughs) Your gold. Uh, But they learn from them. Mm -hmm. And from all the the evidence, uh, the the, uh, South Americans who were there um, were very generous showing them how to do it, you know? So they learned from the 48ers and then they kicked them out, of course. Uh, They were uh, expelled. You know, we had, you, you and I both uh, have some lines and sat for interviews in Ken Burns' uh, his, his forthcoming The American Buffalo documentary. And uh, following that, we had, I had occasion to interview him on this podcast along with his colleague Dayton Duncan, who you're personal friends sure. with. Yeah. Um, and in, in talking to Dayton Duncan, it occurred to me that even though I thought I had, I had not watched the Dust Bowl. I thought I did, but then I was like, you know what? I actually didn't. So I just recently went and watched the Dust Bowl. And speaking of human migrations, the as much as we, you know, earlier I kind of talked about, there's these things in American history that, that absorb a lot of mental energy. And, and sometimes our fascination with them makes them seem overplayed in terms of actual impact, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, far more people fled the Dust Bowl, okay, which which they, in that documentary, they describe as the greatest human cause environmental tragedy in U.S. history. Mm-hmm. Far more people fled the Dust Bowl and went to California than ever went over the Oregon Trail. Is that right? <laughs> that makes but sense. But we just don't. When looking at how the country took shape, right? Mm-hmm. You don't go mm-hmm. and look at that. No, no. Like right. that episode of people leaving 
Oklahoma, Texas, New Mexico, Southern Colorado. That's true. Who got all got billed as Okies. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> yeah. All got lumped into like yeah. Oklahoma. Yeah, that's a real canard. But uh... and 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 it and it dwarfed the Oregon Trail traffic. Mm-hmm. I hadn't heard that. I, I did watch. I don't. I don't remember that quote. That. The statistic, but it makes sense. Of course, the population is a lot larger. By oh, now. yeah. Uh, yeah. So, it, uh, yeah, yeah. It was, um, they're all, you know, American history has all kinds of, of stories like that that we don't, we don't pay enough attention to. Uh, the, uh, the Great Migration out to California in World War II. Oh, uh, 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 I've paid zero uh, attention to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, including among blacks. Uh-huh. You know, when you say the Great Migration among African Americans, you, you're, you're, Usually, you usually to the industrial north. Right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Leaving, you know, as as uh, cotton cultivation was was mechanized, this flight up to the Chicago and to area there. Um, but then there was a second one, that was in the twenties, uh, World War Two, you know, with the uh, boom of defense industries and so forth out on the out on the Pacific coast. You know, jobs are waiting, and a lot of poor black folks in the South. You know, mm-hmm. and they came out there. So the you know the origins of the black presence, presence on the Pacific coast, you know, it goes back to World War II. Well, we don't, we don't think about it. Mm -hmm. Because I brought that up, let's close on, um, if you don't mind, give me some of your thoughts on, uh, give me some of your thoughts on, on bison and the, the broader story of, of, you know, the near extermination of the bison, just like whatever, you know, I know it's a huge question, but but areas of that saga, mm-hmm. meaning the destruction, the recovery, what areas within that long story have caught your attention, or, or you know, yeah, where where have you spent your time in thinking about that animal? Well, I've, uh, I think I've written a fair amount on on that. Um, what really interested me was once again the larger context of it uh, and the um, complexity complexity of it. I think we are mesmerized <laughs> by this image of the buffalo hunters, or the white, you know, the hide hunters, the buffalo runners. Uh, mm-hmm. of, uh, what we tend to forget was that the bison population was de- had probably declined something like half from the 1820s until 1872 or so when that, when that starts. And the decline comes uh, partly from environmental change, as I said before, the overland trails, which destroy these habitats that the bison had to have in the winter, just as the, just as the Indians did. Part of it from uh, Indian peoples who uh, eagerly jump into this, this uh, global market economy, selling robes and tongues. And the Me and Randall had an hour-long fight about this the other day. Oh, yeah? Mm-hmm. Who won? Mm-hmm. Randall. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's about word choice. <laughs> but uh, but uh, the lesson there is once again how the, the globe is shrinking. <laughs> These Indian people suddenly find you know great a lot of money and, and things and stuff um, because they were able to use this skill that they long had in a new way to sell these robes to people in. Uh, in, in in the East, uh, in in London, you know, in in Paris, <laughs> they're, they're what, we, what we're seeing there really is this the shrinkage of the globe, uh, the shrinkage of the globe, and the expansion of of modern capitalist market economy. You know, that what? is what that is what kills a buffalo. It starts to kill them with the Indians. With and the white it, hide hunters, was there? 
like a comparable rush like you like with the mining towns with like a, a a burst of people headed west to go do this sure uh not on the not, not, the, on the, not the same, same scale, number yeah. thing, or the same scale but yeah sure exactly you know uh, i think as steve was saying before when we talk about this uh these were not <laughs> these were not you know uh flabone uh Monsters. These are just young men on the move, trying to make a buck, right? And this is a great way to do it. So, sure, sure. Yeah, just like we had talked about with the impacts of the Civil War, Mm -hmm. like a a good many of the people that got involved in that trade were, I don't know, I don't want to call them, maybe not literal refugees of the Civil War, but definitely people spun off. People spun off by the Civil War. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this country, this country was uh, chaos at the end of that war. And if you're a young man, you know, living in the South, especially or 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 the North, and suddenly this opportunity shows itself, um, sure you do it. And they went on to become one of my early MA students. uh, Wrote a book called or thesis called Reconsidered. And what he did, Dave Dawson. What he did was follow these guys' lives hmm. to the extent that you can. These buffalo hunters. Oh, really? What did they become? Mm-hmm. Bank presidents, head of the Kansas <laughs> Historical Society, uh, uh, sheriffs, you know, huh. ca- candy salesmen. <laughs> just uh, you think of most of them <laughs> winding up on the end of a rope? Yeah. yeah. No, no, no. They, oh, these are huh. perfectly, uh, you know, perfectly responsible, which which makes sense. Candy you got to make some. <laughs> <laughs> The, uh, you always been the, in the uh, candy business, but no, <laughs> <laughs> not always. It's, it, well, you know, it's funny it's, enough. It's, yeah, but it makes it makes perfect sense when you think about it. Uh-huh. You know, they were just they were just jumping into something, make some money, and they turn around and use the money to do something else. And, uh-huh. Chasing opportunity. Yeah, one of the, the the man who claims to have killed more bison than anybody else went on to become uh, chief of police in Oklahoma City. Uh, and then to um, an early filmmaker. Is that Jay Wright Moore? Who was it? Who no, uh, no. Uh, it's another, another fellow. He, and, he, and, no. he, um, and he uh, also raised uh, racehorses. Uh, and his favorite named Chance uh, won the Kentucky Derby, 1892. Huh. Seriously? So, <laughs> so, a hide hunter. A hide hunter. Right. That's so, a great project. <laughs> yeah, it is. I One feel the, like you're disappointed with this, Steve. Like you have this <laughs> image of these like, just like gritty kind of tough guys. No, no yeah. it was, well, it, was this, it was this. It was this, and I brought it up. And I do not mean this as, well, I think I, I, I don't want to put any shade on the Dayton and Ken Burns, the guys that worked on right. the, 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 the Bison documentary, but. When I was given my chance to comment on it, I had a couple factual, minor, very minor, minor factual f- thoughts. And I had an, a, a thing I presented to him as I thought that, and, and totally respectfully, I expressed that I thought that they were um, really, that they dehumanized the hide hunters. And the person who was not watching carefully might get the sense that they were motivated out that they were sadists. Yeah, that they were doing it purely for the joy of killing. Yeah, or something. they were like, yeah. I know what I'm going to dedicate my life to right. is making sure there's no buffalo in the future. Yeah. <laughs> when it was um, 
a job again and again you see that that you know like the the old you know you know how you know like that saying um fresh set eyes always i've heard that yeah, one yeah. I've heard that <laughs> finds more beans <laughs> that was quite a setup there's another saying there's another yeah, saying it took two plus hours yeah. to set that there's up. another saying that goes uh hate the game not the player that's right yeah okay they happen to be the I, guy. I came i came up with that too and <laughs> and i feel that there's in in looking at what well, we just spent a lot of time on the hide the, the deer hide mm-hmm. the, the deer skin you know the earlier version of the hide hunters was the right. white-tailed deer right. hunters right of of a century earlier um that you can look and say like man what those guys did was rapacious and, and wanton yeah but on an end when you get down to the individual level you know a lot of them have demonstrated a yeah i knew i knew it's i knew easy. but if i didn't but the say there's this one guy maybe it was more one of these guys that said i woke up in the morning now and then and thought am i really going to go do this again today and he says but i would hear the shooting right and if I didn't do it, it was getting done. Yeah, and it's easy to point a finger at them as a group because they they were the last ones standing when the bus, buffalo disappeared, yeah, right? Yeah. Exactly. So it's like those guys. They put a real punctuation like, mark yeah, on. Yeah. But I do think that 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 Yeah. Hating the game and not the player. Cuz I think a lot of these people were just they were just poor desperate people who had no thing. They had no thing. And if you look at if you look at miners, yes, you know miners don't get the same judgment, right? And they're also, right. yeah. you know, it's more indirect. It's not quite as dramatic. I think that's part of it. Is that like the near extermination of the bison is just such a it, it's such it's such ripe material for like a a moral yeah right. story, right? Whereas like we don't say you know. These coal miners were just doing it because they loved air pollution. You know, like, <laughs> like one thing. Right. I, yeah, no, I'm not going, yeah, why do coal miners? Yeah, this is this is a great point. A hundred years from now, no maybe they'll says, be saying and that. And then there's these evil people that hated clean air. Yeah, they could have done anything in the world. Dig, they they decided done to dig coal out and burn right. it. Why didn't they stop? That's that's absolutely all of it's absolutely true. And Fenton Rose that quote that you often hear in there was used in the documentary of Frank Meyer. When he says uh, Meyer, yeah, yeah, I said I can figure that. Says I figured um, a bullet, you know, one shell cost me uh, twenty five cents. Uh, with this one shell, I could I could kill this animal, and I can get back uh, you know three to five dollars. He said. So I figured it out. I said I figured it out, and says I figured that that uh, and I could make more money in a year than the president of the United States. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. That's what did it. It was the market that did it. Both yeah. for the Indians and then, then for these guys. That's what killed the bison. So what are you, are you writing right now? This is a huge book, dude. This is not big. This is not generous font. <laughs> no, it's I, not. I will say this, <laughs> this is, is probably. Huge, what, I mean, what a massive amount of work. <laughs> it was, this is How probably, many pages do you write in a day? Oh, gosh. I, don't, I write quite slowly. I mean, this took me, that took me 20, 25 years to uh Research and writing. Oh, now I feel better. I was like, holy oh, <laughs> But you've done a lot of books. I've done a lot of books, yeah. Oh, this, this is probably the only podcast in the world that has an inside source at the MSU archives. And so I have word <laughs> I have word on good authority that you're still uh, 
I was there. You're still digging. You're still sniffing around the archives. I was there. I was there the other day. That's right. What are you working on now? You know, I'm not sure I'm going to. I know I don't have another book in me, at least not right now. But I like I like to write short articles. So right now I'm fascinated with. Arctic exploration. No, really? <laughs> yeah. Now you're talking, Steve. Well, yeah. I know you are, but I mean, I was hoping it was going to be more esoteric. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love, uh, anyway, this is just a, I've just started reading up on it a lot. Uh, yeah. And uh, there was a fellow, you, you probably know, Gustavus Doan. You know that name? Mm-hmm. He was at Fort Ellis. Uh, he was um, early, with, the, with that first expedition at Yellowstone. Okay. And he was in the, in the Nisperse War in Yellowstone. Uh, but he also um, signed on to um, uh, as a as a part of a scheme to develop uh, a colony up in the Arctic, uh, up into uh, far northern uh, near northern Greenland. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this is a his handwritten account <laughs> of uh, of this expedition. Man, that sounds <laughs> like oh, a book. Huh? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, it's all. It, it always seems like it's a coincidence that these guys are doing. You know, they have a foot in each one of these, but. As you're pointing out, it's all part of the same project. Yeah, Yeah. it's all part of the same thing. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. Anyway, I was I was looking at looking at that very funny, um, really interesting, detailed description of that voyage. But the the real gem of it is his introduction when he says, um, "This is a total disaster, a failure, complete failure." Says, uh, uh, "We did not." Convert or kill any Indians, any any natives. Uh, we we did not uh, challenge the authenticity of any findings by anybody else. <laughs> but it's this wonderful sort of tongue in cheek jab at other guys who are going up there. Sure, yeah, claim, yeah. Claiming, mm-hmm. yeah. It's very very funny. Yeah. yeah. Well, stay tuned for that. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, in the meantime, Continental Reckoning. If you want to be the guy in your social circle who knows the most about the American West. <laughs> Continental Reckoning, the American West and the Age of Expansion. Lifetime work. Yep. Yeah. It is. Yeah. It's it's um it's fast moving. Well, thank you. Yeah, I try to It covers a lot of ground. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I was a journalism undergraduate. Uh, I came out of a journal a newspaper family uh, and was drilled into it. My father was a very good editor. Yeah, and he was he tried to teach us as well as he could. My brothers uh, and me, you know, write, write like you talk, right? Oh, okay. <laughs> and it's a, it's a, uh, if you can't, if people can't, if you're not drawn to it, if you're not willing to read it, uh, then what's the point, right? Yeah. So I try, I try to do that, yeah. I'd like to see you sit down and do the audio book on that thing. <laughs> Very clear you know, up a couple well, months of well, studio space, well, yeah, man. No, uh, it's been contractor for that. And I thought, God, poor guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be, man, that would be a, um, that, it's, a it, it's a healthy book. Uh, like I said, <laughs> as I, you know, I can't wait. I, I, I do it. I'm seriously going to read the book. And um, just in preparation for today, like I, I skimmed around and, and by doing that approach of looking in the index and finding things and then, you know, bouncing back and forth mm-hmm. um, uh, and went to a couple of areas in Western history that that I, I, I know well and like to read about and um, your ability to what I thought was great about is your ability to not get bogged down into the, you know, at 8 a.m., at 9 a.m., but just to sort of be like, 
uh, in a large scale, where did like where did this lead? What right. was this coming right. from? What right. did this really mean? You know, and then someone reading it could very easily use it as a jump off point mm -hmm. to go find a lot of areas that they might want to explore, but just to get in the idea of how the country um, acquired and uh, acquired and homogenized maybe <laughs> like, like how the country gobbled up so yeah, much stuff yeah. and sort of made it into this yeah. recognizable idea of America so fast. Yeah. Yep. That's, that is really kind of breathtaking when you, when you think of it in that larger perspective, yeah. how much happened so fast and with so many consequences. Yeah. And that's what I'm, you can say the same thing, of course, about the civil war, but I'm saying you can say that about both of them and together together those events remade this country yep. so Elliot West again in the latest book and he, he has many Continental Reckoning the American West in the Age of Expansion thank you very much for joining us thank you it's a great, great pleasure thank you This show is sponsored in part by BetterHelp. It is a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that they need and that meets them where they are and helps them get through challenges. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible. It's simple to use. You can connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Montana Casting Company is a performance fly rod and reel company based right here in our capital, Helena, Montana. Each model of fly rod is a tribute to Montana's rugged beauty and adventurous spirit. Their rods capture the look, feel, and craftsmanship of a custom-built fly rod. Scott personally calls every customer who buys one of his rods. Head to MontanaCastingCo.com and use code MEATEATER20 at checkout for a one-time 20% off discount.